everyone, this is Christina Klebe from Rob Zombie's Halloween, inviting all of you to spend October with the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast by checking out their new in-depth Halloween retrospective. So what are you waiting for? I mean, I'm about to get on my dirt bike, but, but what are you waiting for? Go download it now. <laughs> From the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting mouthpiece of the Southeast. Brandon A. Lane bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. It's late and we are sleepy. The air is cold and still as the candle flickers inside the jack o' lantern upon the windowsill. You've gorged on treats and candy, came alive with the setting of the sun, but now is time for nightmares and to no safety can you run. Wolves howl, witches cackle, and ghouls storm the scene. When the clock strikes midnight, we don our costumes in preparation for the dead to become king for on this long harvest night it is halloween happy halloween everybody it's october so you know what that means it's time for another rants from the black lodge podcast halloween retrospective and tonight we're tackling one of the series most polarizing entries 2007's remake of the original this one directed by rob zombie and you have my word that is no trick However, we did receive an awesome treat in the form of that introduction you heard at the top of this episode from the very talented Christina Klieb. Thank you so much, Christina. We're forever in your debt and in restitution for your kind gesture. I want all of you out there in the Rant Army to go on Twitter, give her a follow, at Christina Klieb. Now, once you've followed her, you got to do the same for us. The Rants from the Black Lodge podcast can be found on social media at Rants Black Lodge. You can also subscribe to the podcast you're listening to right now on one of the many platforms we're available on, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or you can direct download episodes from our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug at our web store at RantArmy.com. Listen, guys, we've got some great stuff coming up, but first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Tennessee's most frightening event is back. Ripley's Hard Adventure invites you to spend every Friday and Saturday in October in pure terror as they present their scariest Fright Nights event ever, Grimsby and Streeper Back from the Dead. <laughs> Classic haunted house chills and thrills will only cost you $14.99 plus tax for ages 12 and up, and $9.99 plus tax for ages is 6 through 11. But for the listeners of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, you can have those prices slashed in half with a 50% off promo code. Go to ripleys.com slash Gatlinburg and enter promo code RANT2020. Tickets go on sale October 1st. Don't be caught dead without them. <laughs> Instagram over at Mass by Lance. Go order one now, boy! Yee-hoo! 
Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. All right, Rant Army, it's October. You know what that means. It's that time of year to load up on candy corn, carve up some jack-o'-lanterns, egg your asshole neighbor's house, and watch that goddamn Charlie Brown great pumpkin cartoon for the thousandth time. Whatever you choose to do, do it with the ones you love or at the very least tolerate. I'm your host, Brennan A. Lane, and the man sitting across from me, well, I more than tolerate him on a daily basis. However, he has had a lengthy absence from the Black Lodge, so it is with great excitement I reintroduce the pig pen to my Charlie Brown. You know him, you love him, you can smell his genitals from a mile away. Stank Dick Eddie! Stank Dick! Stank Dick! Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Glad to have you back in the Black Lodge. It just wouldn't be an October on the podcast without you. And tonight we're going to we're going to dive in all things Michael Myers fandom, and we're going to put that to the test because I know you're the uh, the expert of the two of us. And we're going to be discussing the very polarizing Rob Zombie remake of Halloween. Polarizing it is. Polarizing <laughs> it is. Controversial, polarizing, and everything in between. So let's just hit the ground running. Halloween, 2007, October 31st. This film comes out. It does gangbusters. Uh, on a budget of $15 million, its opening weekend gross does $26,362,000. Oh, sorry, let me say that again. $26,362,367. Its entire U.S. gross, $58 million. Two hundred and seventy-two thousand and twenty-nine dollars. Its worldwide gross: eighty million four hundred and sixty thousand nine hundred and forty-eight thousand. Now, if you adjust that for twenty-twenty money, that's over a hundred million dollars. Huge, huge, huge hit. Put things into perspective. Let's take a trip back in time. Two thousand seven is a shifting point in horror. Uh, you have hard R horror kind of coming back to the forefront. Everything for the past, you know, decade, you know, eight years or so has been aimed at a more uh, teen-ish market, the fallout from Scream, which was an R-rated movie, but, you know, you have the things like uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and then you have all the Japanese movies, and this was a hard R movie if there ever was one. When did you first see this movie? Did you see it opening day? I saw it opening day. I graduated in 2007. So I, I had just, I was about to turn, I just turned 19 when I went and saw this. This was actually one of the first dates I went on with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and it, it, it's just wild to think that it's been that long. And it's just, it's, it's nuts to think about. I remember I, uh, they wouldn't let me buy um, multiple tickets because I was only 18. Or I was just turned 19, so they were at the time where if you were going to get like an R-rated movie, you had to be over 21 to buy multiple tickets. And it's funny you bring that up, because I had a similar experience happen in 2003 when I was around 19 years old, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake came out, and I was trying to buy my cousin, who at that time was like 16, you know, a ticket. 
And actually, no, he was 17. And uh, on the MPA posters, it say no one under 17 allowed. So we're thinking like, well, 17, you can buy a ticket. And, and they refused him. So I'm like, well, I'm an adult. I'll buy one. And they refused it. So, yeah, I don't know if that's enforced in every state, but Tennessee, for whatever reason, you know. It was weird because I went there and uh, I, I I was already off work and my mom went with us too because my, it's been like a tradition for my mom to go see Halloween movies with me. That's cool, but that also sounds like a terrible date to take your mom on. Well, we, we had been dating for like... Probably You're, with your couple, mom? No, yeah, absolutely. We've been... Me and, me <laughs> it's and my, Tennessee! We and my ex had been dating for probably about what, like two months now because I met her in July and that came out in about a month, about a month and a half. Around right. then, right. and uh, but it's just been tradition. I saw uh, H2O with my mom, I saw Resurrection with my mom, and I saw that one. And then we saw part uh, Rob Zombie's part two, and then that's kind of where it did. I think my mom kind of checked out after that. I it's just completely under- understandable. <laughs> <laughs> um, the IMDb rating of Rob Zombie's Halloween is a 6.1 out of 10. Um, uh, that's that's higher than, than normal, and uh, this film definitely has its fan base. And we're, over the course of this retrospective, we're going to kind of throw our hat into the ring and our the things that we say positive and think negatively about the movie. But I'm going to be honest with you, I, I, I think that's that's probably fair because I mean, on a technical level, this movie is, you know, it's there are worse movies than this. It's shot well. It is shot well. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, more, more, probably lower than what I would rank it, but at a 27%, which is a rotten score, and its audience score, 59%, which is probably around where I would put it. Maybe, maybe just a hair lower, uh, maybe like 55, if, if I'm being honest about it. I, I would agree with that. I'd say my opinions have changed over the years, but <laughs> oh well, you know, both of us just rewatched this uh, fairly recently. Uh, how did how did your viewpoint of it change from when you first saw it to you know now being? Well, I mean, because I was I was not like eighteen, nineteen when I saw that, and now I'm thirty two. Uh, I feel like it's changed quite a bit, and I'm really excited to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get into the minutia as we continue on. Metacritic has it a forty seven percent. I think that's probably a little low. Google users, which I, I always kind of hail as being kind of the the voice of the common man, eighty five percent. I was I was kind of uh, taken back by that because I thought this would be a little lower, um, but uh, you know to, th- to each their own. On Fat Tony's hit list, and this is where it's going to get interesting because we both have a theatrical and an unrated cut to go to. Uh, what do we have on Fat Tony's hit list for the theatrical? We have 22 kills. God damn, that is Friday the 13th Part <laughs> 5 numbers. God damn Roy. <laughs> <laughs> the dude liked to kill. Hey, but he didn't kill everybody in that movie. Uh, um, uh, Vic, uh, yeah. he, he, uh, he hacked up uh, Joey. Um, but in the unrated, which is kind of surprising because you would expect the unrated cut to have more kills, it actually has less. We have 20 kills. 20 kills. So we'll, we'll kind of expand upon that as we continue on. But... One positive thing I can say about this movie, it is, uh, it's got its fair amount of nudity, but there's also a discrepancy between the theatrical and the unrated cut. What do we have in the Stank Dick Eddie Titty Tally for the theatrical cut? We have three sets of movies. And they are all foin. <laughs> Super <laughs> Glorious foin. as fuck. It's about foin. time you've had me on here with tits yeah, in the uh, movie. We've had a titty drought in 2020, with the exception, I think, of Hatchet had a, 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 bounce, a bunch of bouncing boobies. And uh, Bride of Reanimator. 
There, there, there was titties in that one, wasn't well, there? Well, yeah, but not, there was, not a plethora there, of There titties. could have been more, and um, I, I should have uh, talked to uh, to Brian Usna about that, uh, about how I needed more titties in a movie, especially after seeing uh, Society, you know, his other uh, masterpiece. Um, however, on the unrated cut, we do have one more set of titties. Unfortunately, it comes at the expense of a rape scene. <laughs> Uh, um, listen, I don't think it's too much of a leap to believe that our listening audience probably don't find rape particularly sexy. I just I shot, shot in I the don't. dark there, shot in the dark. Um, if only there was someone who could inject a little bit of sex appeal into this movie with a, with a, with a plum. Do you, do you think this might be a good occasion to, um, I don't know. Sex it up. Sex it up. <clears throat> me, 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 me. Sex it up. Sex it up. Whoa. It's got a wiener. Yeah, thank you. Thank, I can't thank even you. Do it. Good job. Make <laughs> <laughs> me laugh so hard. All right. Oh, <clears throat> Let me get my, uh, my trailer voice. In this hardcore remake of the infamous original Comes, and that's C-U-M-S, a new sexy vision from the director of House of a Thousand Blowjobs and its erotic sequel, The Devil's Three-Way. Sexy terror is reborn with a look into the tough childhood of Michelle Myers, who goes on a sectional, sexual <laughs> awakening, escaping Smith's Grove Sexitarium. Coming this summer, Throb Zombies Halloweener Rated X. <laughs> Thank you. That took me all of 20 seconds to come up with. Oh, man. Oh, man. So listen, uh, since the 1978 original, the Halloween series, uh, series and its antagonist, Michael Myers, has been delightfully terrorizing movie fans of all ages, but it, it all hasn't been roses. There have been several detours and near derailings of the franchise over its 40-plus year history, so to properly talk about the remake of Halloween, we have to discuss the events that led up to it being made in the first place. So let's go from page to screen, and what better place to start with the 1978 original? Now, I don't think it's uh, you know me speaking out of turn here to say that you are a huge fan of this film. Yes. I mean, still number one in the list. I mean... Of all the Halloween movies? Yeah. Absolutely. Part, hard to argue. And um, it was a huge hit. I don't want to discount Halloween. Um, but, you know, it wasn't a wide-release movie in the sense that, like, we have you know, movies in, like, all the theaters at once. It was shown regionally here and there over the course of the year. And The Village Voice, they I'm pretty sure it was The Village Voice, had a just bang-up write-up about the movie saying it was the scariest thing you'll ever see and suddenly, Halloween was on fucking fire. And for the longest time, it was one of the most, if not the most successful, independent film of all time. I think it got derailed by Blair Witch Project and eventually by the uh, big fat Greek wedding movie and so on and so forth down the line. But And it's, one, it's so successful that we don't even know exactly how much money it made. But it was inevitable that someone was going to take the idea of a guy with a mask and a knife, and turning it into a series. It just wasn't Halloween <laughs> that did that. It was Friday the 13th, and 81, uh, you know, 
Friday the 13th Part 2 is coming out. 81 is a huge year for slasher sequels and just slasher movies in general. You've got The Burning. You've got Halloween 2, which, you know, after the success of Friday the 13th, they're like, well, fuck, we got to rush that fucker into, into, um, into production. And Halloween 2, big sequel. They didn't have franchise ideas in mind, and what do they do? They fucking kill Michael Myers off, or at the time, they at the time too. So then we get to Halloween 3, which both you and I are huge fans of, and it doesn't exactly ring with the audience of the time. It's been reevaluated, and dare I say, probably the second, maybe third, you could probably arrange it somehow differently in your lineup but for me it's it's going to be always top three of the, of the series and um but it was unfortunate that it was called halloween three so there's our first derailment of the series then you have a little film called nightmare on elm street that comes out and it reinvigorates the uh, slasher genre for the second half of the decade and you know now leatherface is getting in on the action you've got chucky and and pinhead so michael myers was bound to come back we have halloween 4 which to date is our most successful downloaded episode of all time which is a couple years old now and uh fuck you tony <laughs> it yes uh fat tony uh, unhappy that uh, nightmare 4 has been dethroned and handily so um twice the downloads twice the downloads and uh whoever keeps fucking downloading thanks guys we appreciate it we've done better episodes uh, so maybe maybe check some of them out but you're listening that's that's all we care about so Halloween 4 comes out, it kind of realigns the series, you have a new protagonist in Jamie Lloyd, and everything's back on track, but then they rush part 5 into, into production, and it just doesn't uh, doesn't quite hit the notes. They, they did it too soon. So there's your second derailment of the series, and it was just, it was so quick, you know, you had this peaks and valleys and what do they do next well originally it was going to be halloween 6 the origin of michael myers and that all shit got thrown out and so they did uh halloween the curse of michael myers which is a uh a more mtv-esque cut of that film and for years we didn't have uh knowledge of uh that there was an existing different cut of the movie and we could go in down the rabbit hole of which version you prefer <coughs> producer's cut <laughs> exactly <laughs> but uh for quite a while that was it and as far as the original canon that's that's pretty much it so what do they do disregard the sequels h2o comes out and it's a absolute smash hit Doing a big part to the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis, the star of the original and the sequel, comes back, uh, and she absolutely didn't have to. At the time, did you love H2O? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I know you may have talked about it in the past, but like, I still think it holds... If you go from watching 5 and 6 to H2O, you're going to prefer to watch H2O more simply for the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Uh, as much as I'd like to argue against that, you're you're right... Um, and it's got an absolute great ending. Which, yet again, why the fuck do they keep sabotaging themselves? Because the next movie was the 100% death nail for the series Halloween Resurrection. And how stupid of a title, 
can you put because they should have called this movie Halloween Six Feet Under because this completely killed the series. It was not good. No, it was it, not it, good it, by it, any means. I mean, you even have Rick Rosenthal who directed Part Two come back, and it was just a different time. We're we're full on in the you know early two thousands, and we still have that nine late nineties kind of stank on it, and. They, they try to do something different with it with the whole, like, virtual, like, you know, the cameras on their heads. And that's all MTV bullshit. That's, like, what I, what I think of when well, I think of it. No. You know what they're trying to capitalize on was a movie that, by that point, was already several years old. And that's the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Um, had they done that a couple years earlier, you know, maybe it would have been a huge success. And I don't think any of these movies lost money. But as far as, like, fan attachment, there's, there's not people out there like, oh, man, I fucking love Resurrection. If you are, you're a piece of shit. That's <laughs> uh, Stank Dick Eddie saying that, not me. But, no, you're but a piece I, of shit. But, but I have to agree with him. I have to agree with him. So now we're in a position where they're kind of talking about, like, where do you go from here? And I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the ideas that were pitched. Uh, but the one that was most circulated that I'm aware of was going to be called... Um, uh, Halloween Death Row or something to that uh, degree where after the events of Resurrection, Michael is caught and he's put in prison. Not in a sanitarium. They're like, no, we're putting you on fucking death row. We're lethal injecting your ass and, you know, this, this nightmare is going to be over. And, of course, you know, you would have whatever characters show up for his execution. <laughs> Shit goes awry and then you have sort of like a prison... Uh, escape kind of movie that, which which on paper is not the worst idea but at that point like we've already seen shocker so oh <laughs> i wasn't even going that direction but yes shocker <laughs> would it have been better than shocker yes would it have been better than shocker no <laughs> there's there the, the, either way you answer that you're right shocker sucks but i love it so much horace pinker for president <laughs> He'll repair your uh, he'll repair your fucking television and beat you to death with a crowbar <laughs> and limp away. Yeah, <laughs> that's so dumb. Um, the other the other idea that they had was a full on prequel, and this is sort of the the genesis of what would become the Rob Zombie remake. What changed in the whole equation is uh, Mustafa Akkad was tragically killed in the Egypt uh, Egypt bombings. Um, and this happened in, like, 2005. I was working for the Citizen Tribune newspaper at the time, and we have the, and there's a thing called The Wire where, you know, your stories from, like, national stories will come in on. And it was kind of my job to keep an eye on that. And it came in, and this was a story that, like, they weren't going to run because they didn't have any local ties. I'm like, no, you have to put this in. You don't understand. Mustafa Akkad is the godfather of Halloween. And, and I got, you know, blank stares and like, we don't fucking care. So it got, you know, like a little, a little corner article, you know, maybe like a paragraph long of like, Hey, this shit happened. Um, this is like, Post 9-11, but, you know, not, you know... Right after 9-11. Not quite, like, a incident that Americans are super familiar with. But it was disastrous. And it wasn't just him that died. Um, I want to say uh, his his daughter also 
uh, got killed in this as well. And, and I mean, the, it's tragic no matter how you slice it. But it left the Halloween series without someone at the helm. Well, enter Mustafa's son, Malakakad, who by all accounts seems like a really cool guy who was probably more in tune with the pulse of what was going on at the time. Now, we alluded to it a little before with the, when we did the uh, talking about uh, just the, the, the change of the guard of you know the 90s uh, PG-13 movies going into the things that were going on at the time, and there was definitely a shift of a more hardcore horror film on the horizon. So on paper, it sort of made sense for the person who took over the directing helm to be the one who did it, that being Rock God Rob Zombie. When you heard that Rob Zombie was going to be the one helming this movie, what did you think? Oh, dude, I was <clears throat> stoked. Because not only, I mean, I grew up listening to White Zombie and Rob Zombie. Uh, I only, you know, like illegally downloaded House of a Thousand Corpses because it, it wouldn't get it wouldn't get released, and I found it like on LimeWire or uh, Morpheus or something like oh my that. God. Yeah, old. You're showing your age. I know. <laughs> and so I I enjoyed that movie. You know, it's 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 also polarizing. It's whether you like it or you don't. But it's 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 kind of out there and crazy. And then of course, right before you know, a few years before. Halloween came out, we got The Devil's Rejects, and to me, I still feel like that's his best movie he's made. Um, Uncon uncontested. And and it just, character-wise, like I never went to a movie and felt like, uh, I am I feel bad for the, the bad guys in the movie. And okay. That, that made me feel really I cool. know that people tune out when, when we talk wrestling, but I'm going to throw out some wrestling jargon for you, and I think you're going to uh, completely click with what I'm saying. What you have here is you have... Some just died in the wolves, old fashioned Roddy Piper, you know, Terry Funk villains that are so good at what they do that the crowd starts to love what they're doing. So they become so good at being bad that what happens? They turn babyface in the course of the movie. Now, whether or not that was Rob's intention, you know, unintentional or otherwise. He created an, a really interesting film that takes your perspective and completely shifts it over the course of the your viewing time. So I I, I think it's a a masterpiece. Yeah, and I, I, think... I don't I don't say that like lightly because there are films he's made that I am not a fan of, but I will give Devil's Rejects its due. Yeah, from from opening to beginning, the, even the end scene of that movie is fantastic. They should have left it alone. We'll talk about that maybe on another oh, day. Well, um, but perhaps. But yeah, I mean, just seeing that, I was like, "Holy shit!" I'm like Halloween's my favorite, you know, horror franchise. I'm gonna get Rob Zombie ahead of it, and I'm like, "This is gonna be fucking cool." Um, and then I mean, I was super excited all the way up to going, you know, opening night to see it. Um, but like I said, going forward, you know, thirty-two-year-old me, things gotta change. Well, we'll we'll talk more about Rob as we continue on. I want to focus a little more on. 2007 as a whole. 2007 was jam-packed just from bow to stern. It was just an incredible year for film, and particularly in the horror genre. Uh, a couple of months ago, we began a new segment on the podcast, and the response has been great, so we're going to continue this tradition with this episode 
And so let's do a breakdown of the horror films of 2007. This is not comprehensive. These are just the, the, the bigger ones. Uh, but let's see where the remake of Halloween ranks in terms of its box office against its stiff competition. So, State Nicketty, if you'd be so kind to read off the top 14 or so uh, horror films of 2007. All right, guys. We have Saw 4, the remake to The Hitcher, Hannibal Rising, The Mist, Grindhouse, Hostel Part 2, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2, Wrong Turn 2, 28 Weeks Later, I Am Legend, Alien vs. Predator, Predator Requiem, 1408, Dead Silence, and I'd say our personal favorite off this list would be Trick or Treat. Kind of hard to argue. I will say this, though. Um, Grindhouse uh, is is the top of my list, not as a movie, but just as one of my favorite uh movie going experiences ever the the crowd was so into it it that that entire year was just i i saw probably all of these movies in theater and that's not an exaggeration uh which i mean i i still i still go to the movies quite often albeit uh, not in 2020 where <laughs> such things are not really allowed um we're starting to get back to normal but i i've always been you know, very uh theater going but this was uh kind of a rena- renaissance of like every weekend there was just something Worthy out. of going to see. Well, I mean, I mean in your wor- own opinion, wor- I mean. worthy of going to see at least based off the trailer because some of these movies are great and some of them are not. If you had to to guess, where do you think and say maybe like the top ten uh, of horror films in two thousand seven, entirely based off of its uh, box off box office performance, where do you think the remake of Halloween is on this list? I'd say it has to be either one or two. Uh, well, you... go on. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. You no, know, looking at this list, I mean, there's some blockbusters when you would look at like I Am Legend, or uh, you know something along the lines of uh, 1408. But I'd still say Halloween, just for that opening weekend they had, uh, would be up in probably one or two. Well, you would be fucking wrong. Really? Um. Yeah, number six. It was number six, and uh, there was a little series going on at the time called Saw that was just fucking obliterating the competition, and those movies were so cheap to make, and they always made, you know, buku bucks, and the series hadn't outworn its welcome, but it still wasn't number one. Uh, Number one is I Am Legend, and you, you kind of pointed out that. I mean, Will Smith was still a blockbuster maker at that point. It made five hundred and eighty-five million four hundred and ten thousand and fifty-two dollars. Huge. Saw four, which was number two, made one hundred and thirty-nine million three hundred and fifty-two thousand six hundred and thirty-three dollars. Number three, fourteen oh eight, one hundred and thirty-two million nine hundred and sixty-three thousand four hundred and seventeen dollars. Coming in at number four. A fucking terrible piece of shit called Alien vs. Predator Requiem <laughs> made $130,290,885. Coming at number five, a fucking terrible sequel to the Hannibal Lecter films called Hannibal Rising, $82,169,884. And coming at number six, Halloween with $80 million plus dollars. When I was thinking back, about the biggest movies of this year 
the one that came to mind was I Am Legend. Uncontested. But I, like you, I thought Halloween was going to be like number two because I remember it being a huge hit. And that's not discrediting it because it absolutely was, especially compared to its budget. But this was such a packed year that just by the sheer fact of there being stuff out constantly, uh, I mean, it just it had, like the segment says, stiff competition. But of these films... Which one do you think is still talked about the most? That's a good question. Well, I mean, uh, how, the remake of Halloween, for better or worse, man, is is still talked about. I mean, I, to, uh, trick to, or treat to, is to, to us trick or treat. To me, though, the horror community knows about trick or treat, but you can talk to normal people every day, and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, I've seen I Am Legend, but I've never seen Trick or Treat." Yeah, well, those people are fucking wrong. Oh, agreed. Um, but I mean, I admittedly, I didn't see trick or treat in the theater. You know why? Because it didn't play around here. Uh, the closest place it played, I think was like Johnson city. And I didn't know about it until afterwards. And I was, I had my finger on the fucking pulse during that time, but you know, driving, you know, an hour or two hours away to see a movie, even, even I have my limits, but, uh, when I fucking saw it, that was an instant classic. So as far as the award for, most iconic horror movie, especially one Halloween-themed. It isn't Halloween, it's Trick or Treat. Agreed? Agreed. It's clearly Hills Have Eyes too. <laughs> uh, that movie's fucking awful. Um, Derek Mears is in that movie, and that's the only positive thing I can say. Agreed. Um, so, let's talk about the movie at hand. Um, I think we've uh, jerked each other off enough to uh, <laughs> to get ready. <laughs> Semi-chubbed. So, St. Getty, if you'd be so kind to read the synopsis for Rob's Rob Zombie, the Devil's Rejects, reinvents the ultimate slasher classic, unleashing Michael Myers for a bloody roller coaster of a rampage like fans have never seen. Including folds at a breakneck pace, as well as a chilling new introduction that finally reveals the secrets behind Myers' disturbing childhood. Halloween breathes new life into one of the film history's most terrifying tales. It will leave you speechless bloody disgusting yeah i don't know who saw this movie and thought it had a breakneck pace but uh you may need to watch movies other than like 1920 silent films <laughs> because this movie drags ass <laughs> the first half of this movie is so fucking slow and listen i love a good slow movie if there are characters to uh to, to drive that um but the third act of this movie if you can really even say it has three acts is really it's a two-act movie there's the shit in the beginning and the shit in the end. But once, like, Michael actually gets to Haddonfield and is, like, chasing babysitters, like, it, it is it is a well-paced, uh, somewhat intensive movie. It does its job. And well, let's just say the synopsis spelled it out pretty well with uh, my one deviation from there. But for the sake of setting the stage once again, helming, Halloween 2007, we have the legendary heavy metal frontman of both White Zombie and his solo successful uh, career, Rob Zombie, who has directed some of the best and most polarizing films of all horror. Um, we talked a little bit about it. House of a Thousand Corpses, uh, The Devil's Rejects. Um, he did an animated movie called The Haunted World of El Superbisto, which is basically his attempt at doing a Ren and Stimpy kind of raunchy Horror. Uh, uh, actually, Michael Myers has a cameo in that movie. Mm -hmm. um, he gets hit by a car, if, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. 
Um, the Lord's of Salem, which uh, I, if, if I'm going to be uh, truthful about it, if it didn't have his wife in it, um, probably my favorite, uh, with the exception of Devil's Rejects. It's probably my favorite uh, movie-going uh, experience I've ever had. Because I remember telling you this, I had to go to, all the way to Knoxville to see it. And there was only one other person in the theater with us, and Landry was pregnant with Kalen, and it was the loudest movie. And the lady, when we walked out, she goes, "Oh, how was it?" I'm like, "It was a mind fuck." <laughs> She's just like, "Oh." I I had for, I know you had told me that before, but uh, the first thing it popped in my mind is like, "Man, is this is this story gonna have like a hand jibber uh, kind it of should've. thing?" It should have. It uh, should have. That would have made the uh, moving going experience for me more uh, interesting, and I wasn't even there. Um, uh, he did thirty one. Um, which is like the horror version of the running man, which did we really need that? Um, the universally reviled Halloween two, uh, which we won't talk at length about because it's inevitable. We're, we're just going to have to do an episode about it sometime in the future. And I will say this, uh, just to, to tease you, it is, it is debatably between it or Resurrection the worst Halloween film, but it is so much more interesting than the movie we're talking about right now. <laughs> um, I, as far as like the length of time I could talk about it, you know, both in a positive and negative way would probably like a five hour podcast. But <laughs> we'll we'll save that for another day. Most recently, he did Three from Hell, which closes out the Firefly trilogy. Um, the uh, Sid Hake's dead, so I mean, the All movie right, the movie was going to to be less successful than it you know could have been if they'd made it a few years. It had luchadors in it, so <laughs> it did have luchadors in it. <laughs> oh, oh, you won me back over. All right, so when this movie was being developed, Rob had just broken into the mainstream with the Devil's Rejects, which we talked about. And it was critically and financially successful. On paper, from a buzz standpoint alone, it makes perfect sense for him to get the directing gig. Now, with that being said, in retrospect, um, without you know going on too much of a tangent, how how has your viewpoint changed from how you felt then to how you feel now t- about Rob Zombie as a director? I feel like he. <laughs> He tries to make a movie interesting, but every character always has the same shitty backstory. So when it comes full forward, it's just kind of like no character really has development where you give a shit. Which is funny because in one of the documentaries for Halloween, he talks about how like Tina was a shitty character and you know they made all the characters not likable. Well, he fucking did the same exact thing in his movie. Well, see, I think there there's the problem. He wants to be a writer and a director. That, that's that's problem number one. Because visually, the guy has an eye, especially Lords of Salem, which uh, is almost like the the best Dario Argento movie that Dario Argento never made. It's very surrealistic, and there are moments, you know, where um, the purposeful camera framing. Uh, is is so delightfully deceptive to what's going to happen. Like I, I love that, and his use of color, especially in House of Thousand Corpses, is very awesome. very Argento esque and very uh, throwback to kind of the old EC comics, of Vault of Horror, Tales from the Crypt. So he has like the roots of a, the possibilities of a great 
visionary horror director, but the writing, oh my god, it just it gets in the way. Yeah, the dialogue. The dialogue is terrible in most of his movies. Do you think that like he that he saw Pulp Fiction and was like, I can fucking do that? <laughs> you know, and, and, and a lot of it is, I mean, I know he's a true horror movie fan, and I think he's seen so much, and he's just like, you know, in his mind, maybe he's like, the dialogue don't mean shit. I mean, it could be that. You I don't know, I don't it, know if it, that's it, but, but like you were saying with Argento movies, Argento movies is always kind of like... There's the story, but most of the time the story doesn't make fucking sense because the dialogue makes no fucking sense. Well, you know, between dubbing and, you know, the the, the emphasis being on visuals, Mm -hmm. but this movie, this movie needs grounded characters to get you invested in it. And we'll we'll talk about that as we go on. Now, you kind of talked about that you were a fan of him as a musician. Did you ever get to see him live? No, I almost did. I think it was him and Alice Cooper that played in Knoxville, and I didn't get to go. Um, I saw them on that tour. Um, I actually have the Alice Cooper set of that concert um, recorded. Um, Rob did not offer this. uh, Otherwise, I would have them both, but that was the, uh, oh, my God, what was the name of the tour? I can't think of it. Uh, It was the Gruesome Twosome Mm -hmm. tour. Um, and I'd never, I'd never seen Rob Solo. I had seen White Zombie, like, I mean, like, just, just before they broke up in Johnson City, because I had a very, uh, I I had a sister who was older who, um, uh, found it necessary, uh, to take me places that I should never have been because, (laughs) uh, otherwise she would have been missing out on things. So, thanks, Elise. It's the one positive thing you've done in my life. But uh, but, I, but I got to see White Zombie, uh, probably younger than, than I could truly have appreciated them, because this was like probably like 95 or 96. But I got to see him in whatever year that was that they did the tour, maybe like 2010, 2011, 2012, some, somewhere in there. It was like 2009. It might have been something like that. Yeah, yeah. well, whenever it was. And uh, Piggy D, the bass player, Throws out his bass pick. I mean, like I fucking palmed that thing. I still got it. So great concert, and you, you can't take anything away from the guy. is is an absolute showman. Um, he knows how to command an audience, and I mean, he obviously worshipped at the altar of Alice Cooper. So he's just, you know, taken all of his tricks and kind of updated them for a more modern audience. Um, that being said, musically, uh, the first fucking Rob Zombie album, Hellbilly Deluxe. Fucking banger. Everything he's done since has been mediocre to bullshit. (laughs) So, I... I just, I feel like um, he's found his groove and he doesn't feel the need to really go beyond it. And that's not a knock on anybody that likes Rob Zombie, especially if you've seen him live. I mean, that's an incentive enough for him to exist, continuing what he's doing. But, you know, Educated Horses is bullshit, and, you know, Hellbilly Deluxe should be uh, buried under fucking, uh, you know, concrete so nobody could ever get close to that shit again. Um, we'll, move, we'll move on from the music. Um, Rob actually wasn't the first choice to direct. Um, the heads at Miramax, uh, who owned Dimension, you know, the Weinsteins and, you know, their hot-button issues of today... Um, they actually pursued Oliver Stone to direct, but for obvious reasons, he didn't take the gig. I think actually what it was is, you know, because he had so many picture deal, he had like first refusal on any script. So they had to present it to him just because he's like, I'm going to take the best of like whatever's available. And they're like, well, fuck, I don't want to do this. But I mean, what a, what an interesting film that could have been, you know, born on the 4th of July, but on... (laughs) You know, born on Halloween, born on October 31st. There you go. Um, 
but he ended up doing World Trade Center with Nicolas Cage instead. Um, more a more topical film, but uh, probably Halloween is probably more remembered, albeit not as good. Yeah, but eh, that was a controversial film. So, do what do you think about that? The the possibility of Oliver Stone, you know, a legitimate A list director possibly directing a Halloween film. Does that? It would. I think it would have given given it a little bit more credibility um, because everyone looks at Carpenter and then you kind of look at the other directors. I mean, I mean, Dwight Little didn't really do a whole lot after Halloween 4. Yeah, I mean, nothing, I mean, nothing <clears throat> like super mainstream. He's done good stuff, yeah. but, um, yeah, like, Steve Miner is, is the only, like, one of, like, note, and that's basically because he did H2O, but he previously had done Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3, and he also did the first House movie. Um, you know, n- not none are, like, huge, like, lexicon-breaking uh, successes in, like, pop culture and mainstream sense, but uh, credibility in the genre itself. But, yeah, I, I don't think there was any chance of uh, Oliver Stone ever getting anywhere near a Halloween movie, as much as I'd like to you know, mentally masturbate about the the possibilities. <laughs> um, who would you have chose to direct this movie? Like, uh, if you want to take yourself back to then and maybe maybe now, like, who do you think would have been? I mean, to me, I think it would, I mean, I'm always going to go back to Carpenter. Like, I always think that it would have been interesting for him to kind of reimagine his own movie, but updated it. And I think it would have been great. Um, probably wouldn't have been, but in my mind, it would have been. But I can't really think of anyone. You can't really tie anyone to this specific movie, like the ser- the series, because well, to me, it's just almost every movie is directed by someone else anyway. So everyone always has a different take on how it look. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. Um, the the first person that came to mind for me, and this this is another one that like would have absolutely never touched this with a ten meter kettle prod to to quote Dan Aykroyd, but David Fincher, I think, would have made an absolutely amazing Halloween film. But the whole framework would have been like a police procedural, like the investigative end, and like uh, almost like uh, like Seven or um, Zodiac, where it's like we're following the people investigating the situation more. And th- see, the thing that makes Halloween Halloween to me is not like the the over the top kills. It's the effectiveness of the kill. So you could have shot things very subtly, you know, like in that great, like, panning shot through a doorway and you're just seeing Michael stab somebody but not really seeing it, you know. So your mind kind of fills in the blanks and Fincher's just amazing at, you know, shooting macabre in a sophisticated kind of way. And I think that would have been like the successor of of Carpenter. Um, But like I said, I mean, there was no chance of that ever ever occurring um modern directors uh like especially in the horror genre um i mean i think david gordon green is well suited for the the role that he's got and uh you know we're we're coming up on october at the time we're recording this and the time you're hearing it it'll be october but you know halloween kills has been postponed yeah, yeah i was so brokenhearted and you know it's it's bittersweet because uh, we, we want it to to get released at the best possible time to you know to make the biggest splash um but you know i i'm i'm very excited uh, to see what happens with the series um so i mean like if 
if the, if the possibility of Halloween 2018 hadn't happened and they and they had not done a remake then and it had been entirely on his shoulders, do you think he would have been a good a good choice to kind of relaunch? Because in a sense, it's it's almost what he's done. Yeah. Well, and it goes back too because they always talked about how they were fans, like they were actually fans of everything. Uh, I, I just the whole thing with being pushed back. I know, like in my heart, I want to see. It. I wanted to see it in theaters. Um, but at the same time, the selfish part of me, I kept going, like, I want to watch video on demand. Like, give it, give me it, because I've been waiting. For no, I, I, fucking I, two years. I, no, I get it. I absolutely get it. Especially when you, when you, when you it was like perfectly zeroed in, and you knew that it was coming at this date. So I mean, you had you had Halloween. I had Ghostbusters. Yeah, we, we both, both got, got We both got fucked. I remember as soon as they did Ghostbusters, they said that I was like, "Fuck, they're gonna do it to Halloween." Yeah. And I was like, oh, "Maybe they'll do video." <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, one of the more uh, controversial elements of Rob taking the directing job on Halloween was how outspoken he has continually been about remakes in the press previously. Rob had this to say about directing a remake. I feel it's the worst thing any filmmaker can do. I actually got a call from my agent and they asked me if I wanted to be involved with the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I said, no fucking way. Those movies are perfect. You're only going to make yourself look like an asshole by remaking them. (laughs) Go remake something that's a piece of shit and make it good. So, my first question to you, is Rob a hypocrite for remaking Halloween, or do you think he's the opposite where he was so confident that he could do a a worthy successor that he made an exception because I, I have conflicting feelings about this. I feel the same. I, I feel like it's it's kind of both. Um, I mean, being a fan of the series and you're already doing director, you know, you've done work and you make, you just, he's fresh off uh, the devil's rejects and someone's going to come to you and say, Hey, do you want to be involved in reimagining? This is what it's going to be a big thing. Reimagining. Cause to, it's to them. They try to fancy the word re uh, remake up by using the word reimagining. And you're given this opportunity to do this movie, and it's a series that you've loved. It's a you love the original Halloween, and you. Uh, if I remember correctly, he had John Carpenter's blessing to do this movie as well. Well, to be fair, at that point, I don't think John Carpenter gave, gave two shit. fucking yeah. shits. He's uh, like, I just but, y- y- do it. But the fact that he had the respect to be like, hey, I'm gonna go do it. So I, I get that. But yeah, he's a hypocrite though, but saying you know he wouldn't do you know a remake, but clearly. I, this is my take on it. I think he got George Lucas. So George Lucas created Star Wars, the biggest fucking you know. When we talk about the the prequels and the sequels, but just the the biggest fucking trilogy of its time, you know, something that broke paradigms and changed filmmaking forever. Even though he only directed the first movie, and part two and part three. He had the basic story, and he produced, but he wasn't as hands-on with those sequels. And, I mean, in the Black Lodge, I have Empire Strikes Back, you know, directed by the late, great Irvin Kershner back there. And a lot of what's great about that movie isn't George Lucas. But for years, George Lucas was hailed as a fucking genius. He was told by Yes Men... Like, you are the fucking man. You did this. You created that. And I don't care how down-to-earth you are. If you have someone telling you how great you are on a fucking consistent basis, your ego is going to get out of check. So, you get to think, like, 
Rob had had the the support of like underground hardcore like metal fans and horror fans, but as soon as he made Devil's Rejects and it got thumbs up from Ebert and Roper and you know and Time Magazine is saying like this is a you know one of the best films of the year and things like that. How could you not like? Well, fuck! I'm a genius. <laughs> I am a genius, baby. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, I have I have to think that um, he probably got a little full of himself, and under the circumstances, I don't know that I would have even been any different. So as much as I'd like to throw stones and say "fuck you, Rob," how could you have done this? Like, if I was in the same position, it would have been hard for me to turn that kind of money down. Now he he actually has gone on record saying that like he didn't do it for the money because he could have gone on tour and made you know five times as much money, and that's true. But when he signed this deal to direct, he got a two picture deal out of it. So I think he was thinking forward too. So, like I said, as much as I'd like to, like, fuck you, Rob, you piece of shit, you ruined Halloween, I can't do that. No. Um, because if I were in the same position, you know, we're fallible, we're humans, and, uh, I mean, it is what it is. Um, so, uh, watching the movie back uh, this past week, in which I have watched both the theatrical and the unrated cut, so I, I watched both versions and I could have stepped took it a step further and watched the work print but I could not force myself to do it <laughs> um, uh, it was it was a chore for me the film is just really hard for me to get through and I have to admit that I have a bias towards the movie and as much as I'd like to shit on it you can't deny that it was successful Rob had this to say about the backlash from the fans and critics some people say this stupid phrase oh you killed the franchise no I restarted the franchise. The franchise was already dead, and they hadn't made a film in so long, so I made one. Walked away and then tried to get another one going again. They tried to get another one going again, so I came back and made another one. Um, when people say that Rob killed the franchise, I don't think they're referring to his ability as a director. I think they're referring to him as a writer. And we kind of touched on this a little before, but the let's weigh the pros and cons of, uh, of him as writer versus director. Um, if you watch Halloween on mute, aside from the fact that it doesn't have a like traditional three act structure, it's a perfectly ser- serviceable movie. Like aesthetically, it's nice looking. I do think he goes a little too overboard. He got that taste of like desaturation and stuff from Devil's Rejects, whereas like you know House of Thousand Corpses is very colorful and. So I think he goes a little bit too far into that, but as far as like shot composition and like knowing how to frame shots and you know camera movements all that stuff, like he's he's more than competent, and that's just from years of working on his own music videos and just the osmosis of being on you know sets and things like that. You you can't help but like learn just by being around it. But Rob the writer. Fuck me. And I know he's a huge fan of, like, 1970s movies. Like, you know, uh, he has a a reel-to-reel cut of Manos the Hands of Fate, which, if you are familiar with this, it's one of the worst films of all time. And we love it because it's so fucking bad. But when you're taking that type of screenwriting and adopting it into film, like... I made the comparison to Quentin Tarantino earlier. He has been able to take a 
exploitation type of writing, modernizing it in a way that is applicable for a modern audience. Rob thinks he's doing that, but he's failing. He's failing so miserably. And it works in Devil's Rejects and, and to a lesser extent, House of Thousand Corpses, because he's writing like, you know, just deplorable redneck characters. But did did everybody need to be fucking like white trash rednecks in this movie? I, I don't think that was a good idea. And I don't know if if he's so just I, I he he's disconnected from the world as being a, a rock star and being um you know getting involved in movies that he thinks that everyone lives in a society like that cuz not everybody in the world talks the way that he makes characters talk you know it's funny because like he he mentioned in that quote I, I read earlier about them offering him Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it's like of the fucking big four slashers that's the one you were most qualified yeah. to, to make especially if he had done kind of a hybrid of like part one and part two fuck he could have had Bill Mosley in it it could have been a, I mean House of Thousand Corpses is very much in the vein of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and nothing he had done to that point like even resembles Halloween. And I don't want to say that like a filmmaker that does a particular type of film is incapable of doing another. It just, it doesn't seem like um, the type of characters he's interested in, you know, bringing on the big screen are the type of characters that Halloween is suitable for a Halloween movie. Um, when speaking about Rob as a writer, we have to bring up the vastly different cuts of Halloween 2007. So there's the theatrical cut and the unrated cut. Uh, the first major difference between the theatrical and the unrated cut is the film's length. The theatrical cut is 101 minutes. That's just over an hour and a half. That's the perfect running time for a slasher movie. However, the unrated cut is 121 fucking minutes, which puts it just over two hours. Is two hours too long for a slasher film? Yes. And I can reassure this as I was texting you watching this movie last weekend, saying, oh my God, will this movie fucking end? It ran so fucking long. I was saying, I, there's a, an expression in um, in editing called learning to drown kittens. Kittens are adorable. And when you shoot something, like you're a filmmaker, your film is like kittens. You're attached to it. You you have an ownership of it. But sometimes you just got to drown those kittens to get them out <laughs> of the way because it you're, you're hurting the film at hand. So the theatrical cut... <sighs> The theatrical cut is really streamlined, but it, it, it has less heart to it. So when he reimagined and did this uh, unrated cut, he added a lot of scenes back in. To, number one, which we'll talk about a little later, to make Dr. Loomis less of a dick and to give Lori more of a connection with her both her friends and her parents. Because the theatrical cut, like, nobody really has any kind of character to them they're they're stereotypes and you have little moments but it doesn't add enough to to make you like the characters especially when you talk about the original halloween like how fucking likable are those characters you don't want to see them get killed like they're just normal people that you would you know you would know in high school and 
I can't say that, especially the first half of this movie, I, I wouldn't want to associate with any of those people. Like, um, they may exist in Cosby, Tennessee, right down the road, but there's a reason we don't go to Bybee and, and Del Rio, because you fucking get killed. You end up in a ditch, and your pants are down around your ankles because they love deliverance around there. Yeah, I'm calling it. <laughs> Hillbilly rapist. Um, so the, 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 the major difference uh, between these two cuts is the way in which Michael escapes Smith's Grove. The theatrical cut, we have the police escort, which turns deadly. This is so much more streamlined. Um, it it makes more sense. You know, Michael is uh, in a position to where he's, you know, up and at him, and he, he breaks free of his chains. He, you know, causes a little carnage, and he just slips out the fucking door. Whereas the unrated cut, decide, decided by Rob Zombie, who I guess saw I Spit on Your Grave and just got a raging hard on for it, is like, you know what this movie needs? It needs a hardcore rape scene. And not just a hardcore rape scene, but a needless rape scene. And I want to state this for, for God and country. I am not opposed to a rape scene on principle. Because they're, like, G.I. Jane is a perfect example of a movie that, that uses a point of rape as the entire catalyst for the the arc of a character, um, the Invisible Man. Uh, there, and it's not s- specifically about rape, but about you know the you know, mental and physical abuse. There's things you can do to make that work in the context of a film. However, when it's shoehorned in needlessly, just to get a character out of a situation, it makes no fucking sense. So. When you saw this in the theater, you saw the theatrical cut. Now, when you saw the unrated cut for the first time, were you like, what the yes. fuck? <laughs> I, like, even then, because I, mean, I remember when it came out, because they used to make it a big point of issue. I know you remember this. When DVDs would come out, this is like right when Blu-rays were still just starting to come out. Um, but when DVDs were coming out, you would get excited because you know you'd go to a movie, and you're like, they're going to put an unrated version out of this movie, and I'm excited to see it. Sometimes you'd get lucky they put both. So you'd get like a two disc. One was the unrated, one was rated. So I was like, cool. So then I put it in. I'm like, this is unnecessary. Like, what? what and and to me, being a fan of uh, the Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses, I'm like, where the fuck did Bill Mosley go? Because I and I mean, it's a t- it's a small little part, but I love Bill Mosley. And I mean, yeah, it's it's small. But before they get Michael and they get killed, they have just a little scene of them chit-chatting in the break room. And it's just like throwaway dialogue, but it gives them a, a little bit of a humanity. That way when they're killed, like, oh, fuck, man, you know? Like, you, you don't think that Bill Mosley or Tom Tolles is going to get killed, like, fucking immediately. immediately. But that's exactly what happens. So I, I think those those moments are, are somewhat effective. The other changes in the film uh, see mostly in the unrated cut. Uh, they serve to make characters either more or less likable. In particular, the effort to make Dr. Loomis a more likable character in the unrated cut is something we'll discuss in more detail as we get to Malcolm McDowell. But before we move on, there is one more cut of this movie, and I want to quickly talk about it, and that's the work print. Now, I didn't watch it back this week, but um, when I heard that there was a different cut of this movie out on the internet, and this is before the DVD had even come out. I'm like, fuck, I gotta get my hands on this. And this is, you know, the 
the Wild West days of being able to find things online. And when I found it, I watched it. So that's the first time I saw the rape scene. And I never thought that, like, you know, this is going to be basically the official cut from now on because it does have one major difference uh, from either the theatrical or the unrated cut, and that's the ending. But that rape scene, um, that's canon now. Because the theatrical cut has been all but erased from history, and as you have the 15-disc edition of the Blu-ray, and the theatrical cut does not exist in it. Yeah, and that's the weirdest thing to me, because um, I remember you and me have talked about it, because you used to be able to find it very easily. Yeah. But I don't know even know if a Blu-ray version of that of the theatrical cut exists. It does only in Canada and it's on a double disc with part one and part two. Now I have both the theatrical and the unrated cuts of Halloween one and two on DVD and I'm glad that I've held on to them because I have the 10 disc edition of Halloween because I'm not as big a horror, you know, Halloween fan as, as uh Stantic Eddie over here. But um, I'm glad that I didn't get rid of those because uh, especially now for context, I needed to see the differences firsthand and not just, you know, clips on, almost said eBay, on, on YouTube. Um, but uh, the word print has a different ending, and uh, let's talk about it really quick. Michael, in that cut, is way more of a sympathetic sort of character. And he kind of, he's, he sought out Boo, quote-unquote, Angel Myers, quote-unquote, Laurie Strode, and he just, he wants, he just wants her to love him, I guess, and he gets gunned down. And the way it's shot, it's very, uh, very, like, spaghetti western, um, almost like Sam Peckinpah, where, you know, they're, they're hammering home an emotional point where, you know, the, the gunslinger gets, you know, tore, tore down and a last act of defiance and he, he gets almost a hero's send off. What do you think about this ending? I, I feel it's kind of lackluster. Like, especially after watching the ending they do go with just from rewatching this movie. Uh, Cause I want to say that ending is a bonus. I think, I can't remember if it's on uh, the unrated copy, like as a, like a deleted scene. I, I'm pretty sure it's in the deleted scenes. Um, Cause I remember watching it there and then I, I borrowed the work print from you, which we were talking about right before we started recording. And uh, I, I just feel like, I just feel like the movie just kind of ends. It's just kind of like, uh, I, I could tell that like, uh, that Rob probably got attached to the, the humanity of the character and, and thought like, well, this is his redemption. You know, he's getting what he deserves, but he's, he's getting almost like a, an anti-hero kind of send off. And, um, yeah, it just doesn't work. So I, I'll, I'll say that the, the, the ending that they go with, um, especially when it just hard cut to black, that's, that's an effective ending. Um, we'll talk more about Rob as we continue through the rest respective, but first got to move on to our principal cast. First up in the canon of the Halloween franchise, there are two who stand out. The babysitter heroine Lori and the renegade doctor looking to save her. Move over Donald Pleasance, we have a new Dr. Loomis. Malcolm McDowell as Dr. Samuel Loomis. Um, long career in Hollywood. Um, you've seen him in such genre p- films as uh, Class of 1999. He was in Star Trek Generations, which was a fucking terrible movie. But he was in that with William Shatner, who was in Miss Congeniality with Ernie Hudson, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. 
Uh, he was Caligula in Caligula, which, um, uh, depending on which film uh, cut you watch of that movie, is either softcore porn or hardcore porn. <laughs> um, but he'll be eternally remembered as Alex DeLarge in Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, Clockwork Orange. And a shout-out to uh, Touch and Tip Skip, because he actually just found me a uh, nice, pristine, laserdisc copy of Clockwork Orange fairly recently, which you just delivered to me tonight. Looking forward to, uh, to checking that bad boy out and room of balls all over him. I'm so excited! I love those trips to McKay. We find good shit I like thought that. you were going to say, hello, when you rub your balls <laughs> yeah, on things. That's you, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Malcolm has the distinction of having both like critical gravitas, but also the love of horror and genre fans, uh, despite the fact that he generally hates horror films. McDell had this to say about his distaste for horror films. I'm not that keen on them. To be honest, I find them tedious. Most of them really kind of schlocky and terrible. Character development and thin storylines. The ones I've seen, they're usually pretty bad, and they're very low budget. Um, Side note to this, uh, the one horror film I did find him speaking positively about, Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. Um, I which which we just did in the podcast. Go check that out, um, juicykruger.com or your favorite uh, pod co- uh, podcasting uh, hosting site. And uh, I, I think it's a great movie. But I mean, of all the horror movies, that's the one you're going to pick. That's kind of an odd uh, direction to. But I mean, it's very satirical. So maybe that's what he's you know attaching himself to. But it just makes me wonder, like, what the fuck does he think about these movies? Because this is this is like it's not like he's been in some really really shitty. He was low- in Tank Girl, man. Oh, yeah, Tank Girl's amazing. Fucking, I love Lori Petty, except in that fucking uh, uh, fucking uh movie we uh, what was it called? You know what I'm talking about? Point Break. Point Break. <laughs> fuck that movie. Uh, <laughs> oh man, yeah. That's an old throwback. Yeah, uh, throwback. Um. Uh, regardless, his viewpoint begs the question, why would he continually appear in films that are debatably quote-unquote below him? The simple answer to that question is that actors of his generation were taught to take whatever work comes your way. That way you are never forgotten when a, a good role will come your way that you get recognized for it. Basically, you work, you eat, you stay relevant. It's what Christopher Walken does, and uh, Malcolm McDowell has had like the most varied career of an an A-list actor. Because is he an A-list actor? He can be, but at the same time, he's in like fucking below B quality movies. So it's it's kind of cool that you can see him in a wide variety of films. But at the same time, it's like respect yourself, girl. You know, <laughs> you can do better than that. Um. Uh, Malcolm had this to say uh, about playing uh, his version of Dr. Loomis. I want to make Loomis a man with a tremendous ego. I met some of those doctors throughout the years where there is more ego and there is less interest in what's best for the patient. And if they get a book out of it, which of course he has done, it's a bestseller and that's so much better. So... The theatrical cut of Loomis, um, he has moments of like genuinely caring about Michael, but he's also kind of a dick. He's very curt and to the point. Um, the unrated cut does put a lot more moments in there where uh, he has this like heart to heart with Michael, and he says, you know, like, listen, you need to open up to me. Like they're they're going to, you know, move you to a 
a maximum security prison or whatever, and then you won't be out of my purview. I, if you can give me something, I can help you. And so there's there's moments that shows like he genuinely wants to help. Michael even says like in a weird way, "You're my best friend," which is a weird thing to say about a, a hulking man that doesn't hasn't said anything in like ten years. Um, but you know whatever. But. I think the disconnect between Zombie's intention and the reality of Loomis in the film is just it's vast because the unrated cut goes so hard to make Loomis look more sympathetic, which of course gets all done completely undone in the sequel, which they just go full bore like, well, fuck it, he's just a, he's a complete pompous prick, and he gets like two lines of dialogue at the end. It's like, well, I'm fine, I'm a good guy, you know, it's dumb. Despite the egotistical aspects, depending on which cut you watch. Um, I overall really like him in the role. I can't really say negatively about him. I mean, he's obviously a, a terrific actor. To me, he's one of the bright spots on the film. That being said, he's not Donald Pleasance. And I don't think he ever intended to be. I feel bad for even having to bring this up, but let's just clear clear the air for clarification's sake. Who's the better Dr. Loomis? I'm going to say. I mean, come on. Come on, come on. Just just say it. <laughs> say it. It's obviously it's Donald Pleasance. Uh, the thing I have issues with is some of the dialogue he's given. I mean, it's clearly it's supposed to represent something that Donald Pleasance had said in the original Halloween or in the series. And once you start doing that, it's almost like he's trying to be a, he's trying to be a replicate of 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 Donald well, Pleasance. They even uh, in there's a difference in the cuts where um, where it's him. He's talk, speaking with Udo Kier and um, uh, fucking Ron, Ron Howard's Howard. brother. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Clint Howard. Clint Howard. Yep. And uh, he he repeats the line in the unrated cut like Haddonfield. Well, Haddonfield's a hundred miles away. And in the theatrical cut, it just cuts because you know, like it's it just it, it's inferred where he's going. And the fucking unrated cut, it's just like you threw that in there. Just to remind people that, like, Donald Pleasance said this. It, it's just yeah. un, un, completely unnecessary. So, I mean, like, verdict, Pleasance. Always. I, I, Always there's no, Pleasance. There's no there's argument. No touch it. But that's no, no knock on Malcolm McDowell. Great actor. Our next, our next cast member steps into perhaps the biggest final girl shoes ever, which would have been formerly filled by the legendary Jamie Lee Curtis. We have Scout. Taylor Compton as Laurie Strode. Now, she's had a uh, an ongoing career, still working today. Uh, started a career in small roles on Allie McBill, ER, Frasier, b- before moving on to uh, reoccurring roles on Gilmore Girls and uh, Charmed, and most recently Nashville, um, which is, you know, shit women watch. I've <laughs> <laughs> not in my purview. Um, she's also appeared in several films, including uh, The Runaway. She was Lita Ford in that. And I want to say, for the record, Scout Taylor Compton is hot, but she does not have the fucking rack to be Lita Ford. Lita Ford, hot damn. One of my favorite pictures, it's like a Kerrang! magazine from like 1986 or 87. It's her and Doro, uh, who's like a German metal babe, and like they're both wearing like leather fucking, you know, f- yeah, I know, jack-off material, right? And, uh, uh, oh, man... Yeah, yeah, it's not knocking you, Scout. Uh, I wouldn't kick you out of bed for eating crackers, you know. But, 
maybe get a boob job to say. <laughs> <laughs> or don't keep your keep your keep yourself uh you know the way you are and i'll just find lita ford her you know 60 year old lita ford and I'll, I'll break her fucking hip um she was in the april fools remake which is fucking dog shit um and she of course reprised her role in howling 2 as Lori. Um, now, reportedly, Scout is a big horror movie fan, and oddly enough, she actually auditioned for to be in the remake of Friday the 13th. She lost out to, I want to say, Daniel Panabaker, um, and she auditioned to be in the remake of Prom Night, but lost out to Brittany Snow. Um, she did land the role of Lori, which, I mean, like, is the, you know quits essential final girl which is probably a blessing and a curse to her however you want to look at it but um do you know who the first and the the role that they the person that they wanted for Rory do you not know this I've held off on telling you this because I found this out and it absolutely broke my heart I can't think of who it is Emma Stone really that would have changed that whole dynamic too, because I just well, well, number one, um, Scout Taylor Compton was the only one of these girls who was actually a teenager. Like yeah, she was seventeen, wasn't she? Yeah, her, she was seventeen. Yeah, she said she was seventeen. She turned eighteen on set, but she was seventeen during the beginning of filming. So there was no chance of you know getting them them titties out that are not as big as Lita Ford's. But that's fine. I still would have liked to have seen them. And if you want to DM me uh, <laughs> at Rance Black Lodge, get them titties in there. Let's see what happens. Um, but Emma Stone, goddamn, is there is there no more like with the exception of like maybe Samara Weaving, like is there any more of like the bastion of all things like nerdy goodness of of that era of like women like and she's gone on to like have a like legitimately successful a-list career so it's probably good that she didn't get this role but my god i think she would have been so good in this and i think of her character in super bad and i feel like she could have played that high school lori to a t like it would have been perfect I'm 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 so bummed that this hit didn't happen, and that's not a knock on Scout because she did the best with with the material she was given. But I, I feel like Emma Stone has a way of like elevating things, you know. Like you know, she's not always in like the best movies, especially those early ones. You know, I mean, like Superbad's a great movie, but I mean the dialogue is not like fucking you know Scorsese level. <laughs> but it's just the 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 personality comes through with her, and I I feel like Scout uh, didn't have the opportunity to really you know, bring, you know, her her personality out the way that probably she should have. So, with that being said, um, if not Emma or, or Scout, like, who do you think would have been good in this role? It would have been weird, um, but I know we've not really talked about her a whole lot, but it would have been a weird concept if they would have actually had Danielle Harris play right. Lori. Table table that because we're gonna talk about it when we get to Daniel Harris, but um I I think you're on to something there. My choice for who would have been great in the role of Lori, and it's a uh, an actress that a lot of people are probably not gonna be super familiar with. There was a Nickelodeon show, and I am just to put it to reference, I have never seen this show. I'm just saying this is what she was known for. It was called Caitlin's Way. And it lasted for a few years. She was kind of like a, a child star on the rise. She would have been perfect age around the time of filming this. Now, the reason I know her 
is uh, she was on the first season of a show called Scream Queens. No, not the Scream Queens that has Emma Watson and Jamie Lee Curtis on it. No, this was a reality TV show that uh, they did on uh, VH1. And uh, uh, James Gunn was was the host of it during the first season. It's a really good show. You can actually find it on, like, Tubi and stuff. But she has the most, like, wide-eyed innocence to her and an absolutely beautiful rack. But that's that's beside the (laughs) fucking point. But I think she could have, like, absolutely embodied everything about Lori. She even kind of, like, resembles, like, you know, young Jamie Lee Curtis. But not in a way that's, like clone-esque but um, I, I invite all of you go look her up um, she has some nudes leak pretty recently so <laughs> those are good too um, <laughs> I really don't have a lot to say about um, Scout in this role I, I think the fact that she shows up an hour into the film really hurts her character um, but we really we don't really get to know her and there are moments where I think that she's pitch perfect and when she's like interacting with her parents which in the unrated cut they do greatly improve upon. Uh, they add a lot of those little moments back in. But it's just not enough. Um, so I, that's the one question I want to ask you uh, as the relationships in the movie. I mean, we get her with her friends enough to establish that they're friends, but you don't... There's not enough of that. But the, the one thing that like really hurts me is that um, you have Dee Wallace and uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name that plays uh, Mason Stroh, but their little interactions like really humanize her and they feel like a nice family. And it's such a nice contrast from all the, the white the trash early shit. In the movie. Um, do you, the importance to flesh out characters and the relationships will make you care about uh, horror movie protagonists so much more. And I feel like the the golden age of slashers, like the like seven like you know like seventies up until like you know maybe like eighty four eighty five, like they really tried to f- flesh out in you know quote unquote slasher movie terms of like the characters. But you know Heather Langkamp in Nightmare on Elm Street, and uh, like uh, Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, like they they do a really good job of making uh, Crispin Glover and, and Teddy and all those characters likable they have quirks about them and there's a humanity to them so when they get killed you you care Shelly in Friday the 13th part 3 he's, he's a lovable loser and I'm talking about Friday the 13th but I'm looking at it all yeah. around the fucking room um, those are just the ones that are coming to mind but Halloween the original Halloween you like all of those characters they're not assholes you know they're just teenagers and Lori chief among them uh, you don't really get the uh, parental aspect, which I think is one of the aspects that could have really given the remake more legs. Focus on that stuff, especially considering the revelation that in this continuity she is still, you know, adopted. You know, she's the sister of Michael Myers, which has been retconned, you know, subsequently. But at this point, you know, we still firmly in that realm. So, I don't think that they do a good job in either of those regards of, like, bringing her uh, humanity with her friends. They do a better job. And especially the stuff, like, her with, like, um, the two kids. Yeah. Like, like, Tommy and Lindsay. Like, this stuff's all great. Like, at that point, the movie slows down just enough to, like, 
let let the scenes breathe. And the little girl who plays Lindsay, she's fucking great. You know, I am Queen Shiva and and all that stuff. They little about me, like about <laughs> me, little moments. They 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 make you, they make you feel great. Yeah, uh, I feel like uh, they do a really good job making her more of a like more than just a one dimensional character. Which through the whole first half of the movie, it's like that. Everyone's just one-dimensional, and it's just really boring. But you actually do feel like she is a teenager, especially like you were saying with the interaction with, like, Tommy as a kid, and she, she comes off as an actual teenager, like, I have to watch this kid, and he's a little kid talking about a wolf man and this and that. Uh, and, like, the interaction with Dee Wallace, and, like you said, I can't remember the actor's name who plays... Uh, uh, we'll talk about him a little him as well. But, like, the interaction, like, it, very, it, it humanizes her, and it gives her more depth, and you can tell that she, she comes off as a teenager. Yeah. I, I wish there was more of that, but uh, we'll we'll move on. Uh, the recasting of Lori may have been a controversial choice. However, the the choice to play Annie put smiles on quite a many faces, especially of guys of our particular age range. We have Danielle Harris in the role of Annie Brackett, the sheriff's daughter. Now, Danielle is she's horror movie royalty, and we've covered her resume extensively a couple years ago in our most popular episode, Halloween 4, where she plays Lori's daughter, Jamie. With the exception of Jamie Lee Curtis and maybe Donald Pleasance, Danielle is the most beloved actress and the most beloved character in the entire series. That being said, I'm curious to what could have been if she hadn't appeared in Rob Zombie's remake. So, let's take her out of this movie. Do you think she would have been in Halloween 2018 as Laurie's daughter if you take her out of this movie? Probably. Probably. I, I agree. I think that that would have happened. And that's not a knock on Judy Greer, but I think that the, the, the stage would have been set. There would have been just enough nostalgia from all ends for to put her in there and I know Josh Hartnett is kind of the one that everybody forgets but I I wouldn't have minded if, if you know he had been you know maybe not in the movie but maybe reference that he lives in an adjacent town or something um you know have his uh, 1998 shitty bedhead picture <laughs> like you know on the mantle somewhere but um you know listen uh any movie benefits from having uh, Daniel Harris in it, so I'm not knocking her for being in this movie, but it does kind of hurt that um, she got kind of ignored in Halloween 2018 and the subsequent movies that are going to be coming out. Now, originally, Danielle wasn't even going to be on the radar for consideration for the role of Annie or any role at all. However, she had heard that the movie is being produced and she lobbied to be cast, so this, a lot of this goes to credit to her. Uh, reportedly, when Rob found out that Danielle wanted to be cast um, to be considered for the movie, he wanted her to play Lori. And his wife was going to play Linda. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I, by the way, at the time we're recording this, today is Sherry Moon's birthday. She is 50 years old. Um, to be fair, she she, she is not a, 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 an ugly looking woman. No, she's... she's incredibly beautiful and as is Daniel Harris who was like 29 I want to say at the time that they filmed this and she she pulled it off as being a teenager yeah as well. but Sherry Moon didn't look like a teenager <laughs> then so I am kind of glad that that didn't end up happening but what do you think about her in the role of Lori would it have been too distracting I, yeah I really do because I mean no matter what movie she's in if I, if I watch Hatchet 2 I'm like oh there's there's Jamie I mean uh, that's just it's an iconic role when you look at her that's what I see like, when I see Donald Pleasance in Prince of Darkness, I think Dr. Loomis. 
Oh, I think I think he's the president from Escape from New York, but <laughs> we live different lives. Um, for better or for worse, and for whatever reason, she ended up being cast in the role of Annie, originally played by Nancy Loomis, uh, rather than her uh, being put into the role of Lori. However, her casting was conditional on her appearing nude in this film. Rob, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Um <laughs> oh my god dude that made the movie experience so much better for me and it kind of threw me off at the same time because I just can't believe that they fucking did it good I mean good on her because uh, we'll just uh, she when confronted with the condition uh, she had a pretty humorous reaction this is what she had to say about it they asked me how I felt about nudity I said something stupid like what guy doesn't want to see little Jamie take her clothes off alright <laughs> adult Daniel Harris, oh fuck yeah! So I, no one wanted to see ten-year-old Daniel Harris new. Well, I mean, there are probably people out there, and we hope that they get a bullet to their fucking head. But unless they were ten years old around that time, which you know I was of com- comparable age, so it's fine for me to say that, but not any of you perverts. Um, but. Oh my God! Her being naked in the movie—I uh, think she should be naked in every movie. <laughs> I—I'm I, I'm just a fan of nudity, um, and in general, more more nudity in horror movies. We've we've strayed away from the path. Um, she added that appearing nude um, was a great way to prove that she wasn't a little girl anymore. Uh, she had this to say: All of a sudden, Jamie Lloyd had boobs, so I was no longer Jamie Lloyd. I think it made other producers and writers and studios go, "Okay." She's pretty cute. Okay, wow, she's got boobs. So they started thinking of me in a different way, and then I started getting offers for different things. I'm not sure if it was my performance or exposing my breast, but as long as I was working and doing what I loved, I really don't care which one it was. It was the boobs. But you are a great <laughs> actress. I want to say that for, for for the record, because she's one of the highlights of the movie. Like yeah. she, And in a lot of ways, she's she has a bigger role than, than Laurie. I will say, the character that she plays as uh, as Annie, I I feel like she's kind of plays like a bitch. But I feel like, personally, just from seeing her and do interviews and stuff like that, that's almost like her real personality coming out anyway. Because that's the vibe I get from her, um, is that she just kind of has a bitchy attitude. Dude, it makes my dick so hard. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even. I'm I'm knocking the fucking table over right now just talking about it. Um. So, is the nude scene the highlight of the movie? For, for me, it is. <laughs> it's one of the ones for me, absolutely. Um, uncontested. Like, I mean, there might be some, like, eights, but on the scale of, like, one to ten, ten out of ten. Um, we highly recommend those boobies. <laughs> oh, man. And, and I, want, I want to point this out. The other day, we were talking about this, and you're like, you know, they're kind of small. And I was like, how dare you, sir? <laughs> yeah. They are didn't. fucking, they are fucking perfect. <laughs> I, I well, everything I said uh, to Scout Taylor Compton about getting a boob job. No, Daniel, you stay perfect. You stay perfect, girl. If then things get saggy, I'll hold them over my hands. All right. Uh, um, do you remember a, a particular post in our Facebook group involving Daniel Harris that got quite a few people in a tizzy? I do, I, I do, but I don't. I can't remember what exactly was it, said. It was, oh yeah, I remember now. Okay, so it was her in a in a. Uh, a Halloween themed photo shoot that she had taken. She's wearing like black lingerie, like kind of leather corset kind of thing, sitting on 
uh, house steps, and I think they're like Michael was in the in the background. It's unimportant. And then like the caption said, Michael like, was in that picture. <laughs> exactly. Uh, would you cheat on your uh, uh, your wife for, or girlfriend? Yeah, for one, for one night. night. And um and and one person was like, this is disrespectful <laughs> to her. She wouldn't like to be objectified like this. And then everybody else is like, you're stupid, bitch. Like, <laughs> I remember I, that. I, this is disrespectful to her and to your partners. And, and people were, of course, you know, coming to the aid of the Ran Army. Thank you, guys. We're like, I would saw your nuts off for, like, two seconds in that wet wet, you know? Titty Flip and Travis had one of some of the best responses. I think Skip did. Uh, <laughs> Touch of Tips Skip also did. Oh. It was good shit. Yeah, you know, but any, any, all the same, like in all sincerity, we we love you, Daniel Harris, as a human being, and we, we're we're having fun with this. Um, you are one of the most beautiful women on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. And if given the opportunity, I would fucking strangle your husband to death with my bare hands just for a shot at that. Um, so, so what he's saying is, please return his phone calls. <laughs> please do. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, the character of Annie is well-loved, but let's move on to her father, stepping into the role of Haddonfield's second favorite sheriff, and yes, I said it, Sheriff Meeker from Halloween 4 for life, motherfucker. Um, no no death sheriff. No, no, no disrespect to Sheriff Brackett, but Meeker, Meeker for life. We have Brad Dourif as Sheriff Brackett. Now, we just covered Brad Dourif in great detail on our three-year anniversary episode, which was a Child's Play retrospective, so I invite all of you out there who haven't listened to it yet to go download it ASAP and get a full rundown of his career. The one aspect I do want to touch on, Sheriff Brackett, and whereas we're discussing who was the better uh, Dr. Loomis, it was a landslide, I think this might be a little more of a contentious argument who is the better Sheriff Brackett? I, I like Brad Dourif or Charles Cyphers? I like Charles Cyphers just because I, I can he's completely believable as like the sheriff to me. However He's terrible at his job. I like I just like I mean he he looks like he would be a sheriff. Yeah. Uh, in, a, in a small town where there's never any crime. He looks like he was like the foot like the star football player that never left town and he became a sheriff to fuck with kids that he picked on in high school. Listen, I, I completely agree with what you're saying, and I uh, will give you your point of view. I th- I think Brad Dourif oh. is so good. Oh, absolutely. I see, I'm, I'm agreeing with that as well. Brad Dourif, uh, the way that he says, there's a line where he goes, when he finds um, Annie, with basically, he's like, he's like, Annie? It's like the way he says it, he's so sympathetic. Uh, I, I just I love him as a as an actor overall, so I would I would give it to Brad Dourif. Um, yeah, it to for me, and this is not not any knock on Charles Cypress, who actually is coming back for Halloween Kills, but I think that fuck man, Brad Dourif, how how can you how can you argue against him? And in the, he's definitely the highlight of, of Halloween too. Yes, um, that's some. Emotional manipulation there, throwing those shots of uh, fucking uh, Daniel Harris as a child during the scene where he discovers her body. But, oh my God, that's an effective scene. And his acting right there, you feel it. You feel it. It's just like I was saying about when he found her in this movie. It's almost like we were talking, it's almost over the top, but it's not. And it's like the perfect amount. It's it's great. Well, I mean, like, listen, I mean, I don't want to put you in like a, a fucked up headspace, but if you were to find your daughter... Oh yeah, murdered. Like you're probably going to be a hundred times worse than that. Oh, yeah, and I know, like 
you put things on film and it can read as strange, but and I've heard people say that he goes above a little too broad with it. But I don't know. I it hits me in the feels, man. And I don't have kids, but um, I, I thought he was completely believable. Where we didn't really go into detail about Annie or Sheriff Brackett, we do have to spotlight our villain and the actors who played him, and that's actors plural, both young and old. First, we have the young boy who would become a shape. And I'm going to mispronounce this fucker's name, Dag Ferch, as young Michael Myers, or uh, Michael Myers at 10 years old. Uh, he's... Uh, it act, he's a working actor. Um, he's got quite a few uh, acting roles under his belt, so I mean, he's continually worked. Uh, he's in The Freak Show, which is a terrible remake of uh, Todd Browning's Freaks, uh, as a small role in Will Smith's Hancock. Um, he, uh, he plays a character named Michelle, um, and he's French, which I thought was, I thought like, fuck, that, that's gotta be a, uh, a direct reference there. Um, and uh, he was in The Accountant with Ben Affleck, who was in Argo with John Goodman, who was in Blues Brothers 2000 with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters, you just got busted again. Terrible movie, but um, <laughs> I needed to make a connection. Now, at the time of this recording, Dag has 46 acting credits um, to, his, to his credit. Credits to his credit. You know what I'm saying. Uh, but th- these days, he's focusing mainly on his rap career, <laughs> where he goes by the moniker Great Dag. Have you heard any of his music? No, I don't plan on it. <laughs> I listened to about 20 seconds of a song, and I wanted to throw my remote through the fucking TV. Listen, I, if far be it for me to, to shit on someone's, uh, you know, extracurricular activities and what he does, because he has a following. He's a thousand percent more successful than this podcast will probably ever be. So I gotta give the devil his due. That being said, rap aspirations aside, to the general public, um, he's gonna be forever known as Little Michael Myers. I don't care how famous or you know YouTube rapper he becomes, or what they call them SoundCloud rappers. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're getting old. I know, I know. But not only is he young Michael Myers, but he's also pretty much the star of the first part of this film, which leads to our next topic of discussion. Rob Zombie's Halloween is. Basically, two distinct segments. It's the first segment set in the past, uh, detailing Michael's backstory, and the second part, which takes place 15 years later and serves as a truncated retelling of the first film. Question. When does this fucking movie take place? I was just about to ask you the same question, because the first time I saw this movie in theaters, uh, I got the assumption that you know, he's wearing a kiss, kiss shirt. shirt. So I'm assuming it's the like late seventies. It's like 70, I'm thinking like 78. So then we get to the point where it, you'd be like 15 years later and you're like, well, okay. Or is it 15 years? I think it's 15 years. It is 15 years later. When you get 15 years later, you start seeing like, well, okay, so I'm, I'm, just, I'm trying to connect dots. I'm like, well, the sheriff's car looks like a more recent car. I'm like, they're using, like, yes, there's cell phones in the yeah, movie. Yes. So this time frame doesn't, makes sense um the, the first part of the movie you've got all the 70s music like his mom and like the different people there they they're dressed judith, like people yeah, judith from, is definitely wearing something that would be worn in the late 70s yes and then the second part of the movie they're like i said there's cell phones and linda played by christina klebe shout out for giving us that awesome intro we'll talk about her a little later on she's wearing a slayer shirt so it's definitely in the 80s at the very 
earliest at that point. I just, I'm so fucking confused at when this is supposed to take place. And I know Rob, Rob is in a vacuum of like the things that he loves. He loves Kiss and he loves Alice Cooper and he loves uh, fucking uh, Blue Oyster Cult and, and, you know, and Black Sabbath and he wants to, and the Misfits and he wants to throw all these things into the movie. But it sort of like confuses the audience into like not having a clear idea of like when does this movie take place. And I guess ultimately it doesn't matter but when you hang your hat so heavily on the aesthetic of something, and then you shift in time, and then you have things, things. It just it, it's that was my biggest thing when I watched it in the theater. I'm like, what the f- yeah, when the I, fuck is this taking place? I legit looked at uh, my girlfriend at the time, and I was like, when is this movie supposed to take place? And she was like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. I, by the way, um, I don't know how much they paid Gene Simmons to, to put a Destroyer t-shirt in this movie, but I bet you that it was a good chunk of the budget because those guys know how to, to turn a turn a profit. So licensing a lot of these things was super, super expensive, and that's just me knowing how the, the business works. So I'm taking a shot in the dark there. Uh, regardless of when the film takes place, Dag, for better or worse, leaves an impression, but in giving Michael a sympathetic backstory, in my opinion, he makes him way less scary. And that's not on Dag. That's on Rob. What do you think about Dag as young Michael Myers? I hate him. Especially after rewatching this. Uh, and it, like you said, it's not his fault. But he's given shitty dialogue. The dialogue that he's given to say, and the way that... And this, partially falls on him he was a kid the way he delivers certain things it makes me hate it i don't know what it is like i said with the dialogue but there's the the whole little bit where he's you know the bullies are fucking with him in the in the fuck you yes and it's like the most forced cringy fucking thing it's like i said he he rob zombie when he writes dialogue he looks at it as everyone talks that way, but not everybody fucking talks that way. Yeah. As the, I'm saying, fuck. The, the, the bullies in there. You're like, did your mom let me suck her titty and, and things like that. And like, that's um, like stuff get, we get, say. Get in line, buddy, because um, I want to crack at those 50 year old <laughs> titties. As an adult, it's shit we say joking to one another. Yeah, but like, we don't talk about that in like seriously. No. And, and listen, I, I'm not, I don't know how kids talk today, and I mean, or I don't have a clue how they talked in 2007 or in 1978, whenever this movie is supposed to take place, but it's it's not like that. Especially in, is Illinois this supposed to take place? How in Illinois? Like, maybe if this was like, how we in Alabama, maybe? I, I don't know. It's just, it's very, it's very confusing. Um, here's the other question. Should the backstory have been excised, or should this have been two movies shot back-to-back? Basically, you have the the pre-Michael, you know, him becoming the killer, going to the uh, uh, Smith's Grove, and then maybe ending that movie with him escaping, and then the second movie being the for the lack of a better word, the remake. I don't think if you did it that way, the first movie would have enough legs to stand on where people would give a shit. I just don't think people would care. Because people, just to me, I don't care about Michael Myers being a kid. I care about a guy with his mask on stalking someone and killing them. Now, we've talked about this between you and me, about how if I was going to ever, I would want to recut this movie. I want to recut this movie so bad to where you pretty much start the night where he kills 
Like you skip Judith all, and yeah. And, so you, uh, you start from there because then it makes him just a cold hard killer that she won't go take him trick or treating. You don't even know his mom's a fucking stripper. You don't even know that the step and she's not fucking naked in the movie. How the fuck are you gonna have your wife in this goddamn movie and she doesn't show her fucking titties? This is goddamn but, highway but robbery. She, she showed her titties in um uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, for like twenty seconds in, she, in black and white footage. But she did. But it. It, to me, it wouldn't be a good standalone film. I think if you could have, you could have still got the point across that he, that he, you know, like the whole animal finding a fucking animal in his fucking locker, yeah. like all that. Why? Here's the thing. The second half of this movie is a better constructed narrative, but the first part is more interesting. It's just not well executed. So, like. Going back to where I was saying about David Fincher, if David Fincher had directed young Michael Myers in... I think there's a story to be told there. But it does make him less scary when you know this XYZ is why he became this way. And and listen, I mean, I, I think there is something you know to say for nature versus nurture. Like, there's stories that could be told... Um, but it's got to be in a more grounded reality, not in, you know, well, my dad is going to scuff up my mom, and he's all banged up over here and can't work, and he calls me Michelle Mabel, and, and the bullies make fun of my mom because she's a stripper, and my sister's a whore. Like, like th- those things, I'm not saying 100% can't make you a shitty person, but they're not going to make you a fucking murderer in of itself. I don't know. I think it's it's weak sauce. That's just my that's just my take on it. Um, let's move on. Um, one of the elements of Michael's backstory is his obsession with mask. That I guess there there is an interesting aspect to it. Um, so let's just kind of break it down. I mean, there are several that he wears in the movie, but the big ones are the the clown, which is evocative of the '78 movie. And he has the paper mache pumpkin, which he wears basically the beginning of the third act of the movie. And then there's the classic mask, and then the rotted version from 15 years later. Which of these do you like? Which of these do you dislike? Uh, I, to me, the the ma- the clown mask in the original, I think that costume is, it just it just looks cool. Uh, I feel like. They're it just they're kind of putting off. It's a cheap costume, so I get that. So I don't, I don't hold anything against that. Um, I do like the fact that they hide his face while he is incarcerated. So the idea of the mask makes sense. That's something he. It's a hobby as he loves Halloween, so that he keeps making those. Now we've talked about this before, where the original mask, like when he, I mean the 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 boyfriend brings it to Judith. Yeah. That mask I really like. I think as out of. Some of the movies, you know, out of it's probably like in a top three. Top three, definitely. And but when you get to the idea of where it's all, it's starting to like you know, you know, get all fucking start to rot away, and it has all that. I just feel like it's another little niche of Rob Zombie where it has to kind of look like that. I mean, to me, it would have worked just as fine to me if he would have came out and still had the clean mask and just had it tucked away. But then again, it goes back to how the fuck did he have time to put the mask under there? Like, How did the fucking cops not find it? Exactly. Well, he had a. Pool. They didn't find the knife either. No, and he put it all in there, and he had to pry the boards open. So how the fuck did it get under there? Uh, it's it, that's uh, that's creative license, and uh, I'm sure lazy that, uh, writing. Well, no, you're right, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that watch that, and it doesn't even cross their mind. But uh, especially 
going from just a pure fandom point of view into the realm of criticism, which, you know, we're now, for better or worse, we're a part of, you have to look at those things, and it just doesn't make any fucking sense. It's clear that Rob wanted to justify Michael wearing a mask when he kills... He pays special attention to this uh, film's version of the classic mask. Rob had this to say about the mask. Well, I didn't want it to be, you know, Michael just happened to rob a hardware store and steal that mask. What if they didn't have that mask? Would he? What would he steal? A Jimmy Carter mask? An Elmo mask? If that was the only one available at the hardware store. And when did he rob that hardware store? In broad daylight? And the alarm is still ringing? I mean, where is everybody? Those little things bothered me with the original movie. Thank God Loomis stopped by to make that call exactly at the phone booth where he dropped the car off and found the rabbit and red matchbook. Those kind of coincidences always kind of bothered me, so I'm trying to make things make a little more sense. There is a narrative language in film where you, you leave clues, you show, you don't tell. And he's overthinking details and not focusing on the big picture to such a degree that these things are, they stick out like sore thumbs. So I hate, I absolutely hate the mask, the the better version of the mask than the way it's utilized in the beginning of the movie. Um... Uh, Judas boyfriend wears it while they're you know like fooling around and stuff and, and that's fine. But then you have this like three foot tall kid put it on and like that scene is great, except that it's so fucking goofy that he's got a mask that like doesn't, fit. doesn't fucking fit. Like, um, so yeah, it, it would have been better to have just like you know actually show him if you want to give the mask pathos. Have it be the mask he wanted as a kid and never got... I don't know. There, there's better ways to go about it than the way that they did it. I, I I absolutely hate him wearing that fucking mask and that that scene where he's coming down the hallway and, and like, Judith is, like, acting her fucking ass off and, and she's, like, you know, clutched over in, like, pain and, like, you know, she's bleeding out. And then she comes out of frame, and you see him standing back there, and I chuckle every fucking time. Like, you kill the tension like that. You absolutely kill the tension. Of course, the mask will come back into play in the second part of the film, and speaking of the second part of the film, locked away for 15 years, a disturbed little boy would become a hulking slasher. We have Tyler Mayne in the role of Michael Myers as an adult slash The Shape. Um, better known for his roles in X-Men, where he played Sabretooth, which was directed by Brian Singer, who is a pedophilic rapist. Yes, I said it. He's shit. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And uh, he was in Joe Dirt with David Spade, who was in Coneheads with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted three times. Um, of course, Devil's Rejects, uh, although uncredited in that because uh, the character of Rufus is like in like five minutes of the movie. Uh, but more recently, he was in the newest Hatchet film, uh, simply known as Victor Crowley. But his all-time best role was that of WCW jobber <laughs> Big Sky. He very, very, very short amount of time uh, tagged with Kevin Nash. And I want to say that he was like a a bodyguard for Doom in like 89, like for like a really, really short amount of time. But as far as like his actual wrestling career, like... He was the, Kevin Nash was Vinny Vegas at the time, and they were like a makeshift tag team that lasted like one 
or maybe two WCW Saturday nights. I know this you play, they fucking love it when we talk wrestling. Yeah, this is this is a funny thing too because like you always see like we'll finish wrestling really quick, but like you'll see like a flyer and they'll be like WCW superstar blah 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 and they wrestled like three times <laughs> and like they did nothing. So it's kind of like well they were there but were they really? Nah, like, I mean, yeah. Um, he he's as well known in WCW as as uh, fucking you know Wildcat Wendell Cooley you know so wrestling let's, let's put that to bed um, at six eight it's no wonder he pursued a wrestling career at that point in his life and there's also you know there's just tons of action roles for people of that stature so the dude's jacked um, and fucking comparatively he is by far the tallest actor to play michael myers in the entire series so there there's my question here is he too big to play michael no i actually like the i like it it's very imposing um it almost makes it unrealistic but at the same time i mean good genetics i don't know how the fuck he would have grown up to be that big this is this is how rob justifies it um his wife is super tall so Michael would would grow super tall, and we and you never see his father. Ronnie is not the father because they even Judith says, "Oh, he's in heaven or whatever." Um, so presumably he was also a, a big hulking person. But I don't like him. Uh, it's not it's not him specifically in the role, just you know, bar none. But I don't like Michael being that big. Um, I think it's scarier when it's it's a a big guy. But it's just a fucking guy. Um, if you see a guy that's like nearly seven foot tall, there, there's automatically going to be a, a sense of like, oh shit, you know. You know, especially I'm five seven, so that's a you know, <laughs> that's looking up at a fucking and, skyscraper to me. And I guess that's kind of the same mentality they had, like in Freddy versus Jason, um, where they made yeah, made him, he, he definitely could see the height difference. So that I means some little things like that could always it's kind of be on people's minds, especially when you look back at Derek Mears being in the original or the remake of The Hills Have Eyes. He was very imposing because of his size. I mean, it's kind of a different concept, but I mean, I get the idea. It's an, it's an imposing size. I, I, James Jude Courtney, it's, you see a guy, it, you have the, the fact that it's Halloween and you can justify someone wearing a mask and you can disbelieve just long enough for that person to fucking kill you. To me, that's scary. Yeah. But if you see like a seven foot tall guy, you're like, oh, I'm gonna walk a couple of steps out of this guy's way just in case he trips over me because he doesn't even see me. So I, I, I think that there's you could you can make arguments for either, but I, I don't I don't prefer Michael to be so fucking tall. Um, in addition to Michael being physically different in you know in the role, uh, Rob also directed Tyler to play Michael differently than previous actors who've donned the coveralls. Rob had this to say about the way he wrote the adult version of Michael Myers. I've always thought I played Michael more like he was Frankenstein. Because, you know, all these monsters always have a sympathetic edge to them, and there was always some sort of misunderstanding going on, or the way they were thrown into a world and didn't understand, and what they did was horrible, but they just didn't get it. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I do not get a Frankenstein vibe from this movie or Tyler Maine's performance, like, at all. The role, Michael Myers, bar none. His Michael is incredibly violent. Probably the most violent 
of any of the portrayals of Michael throughout the entire series, and we're going to talk more about the victims uh, and their deaths in just a few minutes, but uh, number one, uh, I disagree with that. Do you disagree? Do you get a Frankenstein vibe? Like I get with some of his movements what they're going with, but I don't really see it. I think it's very far-fetched. I just, I, but it's very telling in what he says there, you know, the, the sympathetic edge. And I think they just, they hinge on that too much because you, you can, you can make a compelling character when, and you can hate them, but still understand them. Like Magneto from uh, X-Men is a perfect example or, or Thanos uh, from you know, the Avengers. You can, you can have a character that's multi-layered and things like that. But you're not scared of those characters. He's a shape that's in the. It's a fucking name. He's not supposed to be a human being. He's devoid of humanity. So playing him in this like a hyper violent way, I, I get that. But his assertion of playing him like Frankenstein monster, I don't. I don't pick that up at all. So my question to you is: This version of Michael too violent? Or does it work for the purposes of this movie? It works for the purposes of this movie. I know, um, personally, being around a lot of people who are fans of Halloween, one of the biggest gripes they have is that he grunts a lot. Even in this movie, he still grunts a lot when he kills. Yeah. It's worse in part two. It's very noticeable in part two. Die! Yeah, well, yeah that is... <laughs> I digress. But, but, I mean... It, at that, you know, the same time, he has a lot of anger, and you know, you're, you're, when you're doing just like uh, Kane Hodder playing Jason in Part Seven, you hear him physically grunt and do things. Yeah. So I get that; it makes sense um, for the purposes of this movie. Yeah, I get, I get the the violence. Uh, if you're gonna put this to the original Halloween, no, it'd be it, it, it'd stick out like a sore thumb. You you hear Michael breathing, and I I, I find that way more creepy. Of like, especially when he's killing Bob, mm-hmm. and it's, all you hear is just the him breathing and just the head tilt and looking. It's it's the his reaction makes that scene scary. It isn't the fact that he killed somebody, and I do think that uh, although there are some good kills in this movie, like the Halloween series was never built upon kills in the way that like Friday the Thirteenth was. Um, it's more about the the stalking and the you know, the the aftermath, like a character discovering a dead body that builds the tension and makes something scary. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted because a more violent Michael Myers, to me, both makes him more human and less human at the same time. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of torn on it. Yeah, I get what you're saying too about the, the breathing. Kind of like when he... Uh... He kills um, Linda, yeah, and with the, with the cord, and you kind of hear him go. Mm. But you can hear the breathing. Because his boners in her back. <laughs> See anything you like? Yeah, I do. No. <laughs> Let's get to town. <laughs> She's an S and M shit. <laughs> um, it's just a personal preference. Like, uh, like if if you were the one in charge of like remaking Halloween, you know, is this the direction that you would have gone? You know, and more more would you? want more implied violence well you gotta think too i know we kind of went over um the stiff competition you're already on the fourth saw movie so they're gonna have kind of contend against something like that so i guess they would want them to be more violent well even like going into into halloween 2 in 1981 they they upped the gore because they're up against you know the burning and and friday the 13th part 2 fantastic movie i finally watched the burning oh great movie thank you i'm glad glad you finally uh checked that out cropsy yo 
<laughs> All right. The, the the ultimate judgment of any slasher film is going to be in its kills. So let's break down our victims and the horrible ways they were sent to their graves. We have quite a few. We'll, uh, we'll elaborate where necessary. But we're just going to rush through this. I'd like to get us done in uh, roughly around two hours, which we're coming up on. But... Uh, Let's see, we're coming in uh, quite a bit under where I thought we were going to be, so I'm actually happy about that because I, my fear was that we're going to be like four hours in. And I'm like, oh my God, just end this shit. <laughs> All right, so the victim number one. The film's first kill sees the character of the bully, Wesley, who is played by Daryl Sabra. I'm probably mispronouncing that. You probably remember as the uh, little boy in Spy Kids. I never put that together until I did this research. I didn't watch those movies. I, never it. I, I I did see the one where Sylvester Stallone was the villain. It was in 3D because I'm a Sylvester Stallone mark and I couldn't help myself, but that movie sucks. Um, he gets beaten to death by Michael in the woods because he calls Mikey's mom a slut. Um, I gave this a 5 out of 10. And my reasoning for that is I would have ranked it higher because it's actually an effective kill because the kid's acting as fucking ass off like the blood vessels burst in his eye and he's like begging for his life and it's just a good 180 turn from you know how aggressive he was when earlier when they're like you know roughing him up in the bathroom um the why the reason it's ineffective as a kill is because he's so unlikable you want to see him get killed and i just i feel like even though, like, you can maybe do one or two of these in the movie, but I, I think this being the the first real kill you see in the movie, like, I I, I thought this was a kind of a shitty way to kind of start the movie off, because um, it it makes it a, his actions a little more justified, and I, I need Michael to be evil and not I don't want to root for him. Um, where would you put it on a scale of one to ten? I'd give it a six. I I do like the whole shot. The whole shot's pretty cool. Uh, oh no, it's the, it's beautifully and shot. The way, like, the, like it circles the trees yeah. and everything, and like you said, he acts the shit out of that kill. Yeah, good, good on you. Um, maybe uh, maybe do some better movies than the Spy Kids movies. <laughs> um, our second kill sees legendary character actor William Forsyth, who I actually uh, rode on an elevator with, and I had no idea it was him. And uh, we were both going to an after party at a convention, and um, and uh, I actually did uh, the time warp with uh, Doug Jones. That night, uh, completely uh, different uh, uh, story. But um, I, he had uh, his. I guess either his natural hair color is blonde, or he colors his hair blonde, and I just didn't recognize him. And he was talking to me and stuff, and I'm like, he's a nice guy. And uh, the guy who was there with me was like, that was William Forsyth. And I'm like, fuck, <laughs> why didn't I know? By the way, I have William Forsyth's phone number in my phone right now. Um, I've actually had it uh, for like a decade, and I used to prank call you. I apologize <laughs> so much. I can't tell you who I got your phone number from, um, but his name is Greg. Uh, <laughs> um, he's a... A foul-mouthed redneck who he's fucking Mikey's mom, and good good on him for being able to get some of that. Um, and uh, he actually at, at, the, at the time of filming this, he had like a bum leg, like legitimately. Was it a car wreck, wasn't he? Uh, I, I think so. So they had the idea of like, well, let's just make him fucked up all around, and it's like, I'm all busted up around here, bitch. I can't get a job, and, and all that, and. And it's funny hearing him say those things for about 30 seconds. And then you're like, oh my God, shut the fuck up. So he gets duct taped to a recliner and he has his throat slit. Um, 
you, yet again, you want to see this guy shut the fuck up. Um, another kill that, like, you almost... It's not necessarily justified, but you kind of want to see this character die. I gave it a 6 out of 10 because it's a brutal kill, and it's one of the ones that I instantly think of. But, um... I just, I... I need, I need the characters to be a little more likable. What do you give it? Six, same, 6 out of 10. Okay. Um, number three, we've got Adam Weissman, uh, who now has a successful career working in the casting departments on several television series, including uh, that new Big Show series that's on... Oh, um, the one that just got canceled? On Netflix? Did it get canceled? Yep. Uh, well, he's on some other show. There. <laughs> but he plays the role of Steve, who is the boyfriend of Judith. Um, uh, he bites the dust, uh, getting beaten to death with a baseball bat while trying to eat a sandwich. Um, he just got... He just nutted, and he wanted to eat. Like, poor dude. And he was actually nice to Michael. Um, because like, uh, he's, Michael is asking Judith, like, you're going to take me? And he's like, a tough look. And, and he's like, oh, sorry, little dude. And I mean, he's not a dick. So him getting killed, uh, it's collateral collateral damage. The problem is, is this makes the second person in the movie who has been beaten to death. The only difference is he gets beaten to death with a fucking baseball bat. Rather convulsions. Yeah. Oh, there, that leg twitch, the foot twitch. That is a clear homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I have no doubt that he lifted that 100%. Because that's the shot where... He uh, slides the door open. Yeah. yeah. And then the leg, it's, but I gave it a 4 out of 10. I would have given it higher, but he's beaten two people to death. I need I need a little more variety. Where do you? Where I give it like? a 5 out of 10 just because of the convulsion. I like that. All right. Fair enough. Uh, our next kill sees Michael wear the Shatner mask for the first time. Hannah Hall, who you probably best remember as the child version of Jenny in Forrest Gump. I didn't know that. That threw me off the first time I realized that. Um, it's so fucking obvious. I don't know how I never noticed it before. The Her face is Identical. not changed. Identical. Um, she gets stabbed multiple times. We talked about this. This scene is fucking great. Aside from that goddamn mask. So I gave it a 3 out of 10 because she's acting her ass off and then I have to fucking laugh because the, it's, mask. the mask ruins it for I, me. I look past it. I think it would have looked better him just wearing the normal clown mask to do it. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a 7. I'll give it a 7. Okay, fair enough. Just because she acted the shit out of that. Uh, number 5, we have Nurse Wynn who is played by 1980s sex icon Sybil Danning who you probably remember from such films as Panther Squad or Howling 2 Your Sister is a Werewolf where they have a repeat scene where she rips her top off um, at the end of the movie and it just keeps doing it over and over again. You have my love, whoever edited that. Uh, that's <laughs> wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, I actually gave this um, this scene uh, two different scores and here's the reason. In the theatrical cut, um, Michael just no reason just stabs her in the fucking throat with a with a fork, like unprovoked. And I thought that was super effective, just to like, okay, he's this kid is fucking bad news, evil. I gave it a six out of ten. However, in the unrated cut, uh, they've set it up where uh, his mother is giving him a picture of Lori, you know, Boo. And and she says some smart ass remark like, Oh, she's cute, couldn't be related to you and then he stabs her and I thought that was so unnecessary. Like, why did you add that back in there? Like he's he, he can't make up his mind of whether he wants these characters to be evil or he wants them to be justified in their actions. So why what do you what do you think? I'll give it a six, just because I do like the scene where she, I mean she, she's bleeding out the whole scene where it's all 
wah, like it's all yeah. like, silent. But the same thing. The whole the whole fucking her saying it's so unnecessary. I, I will point out that you actually do not see her die. Um, but it is implied that she bleeds out. So I mean, well, he had a main artery. So. Well, I I mean, it's is it's a very narrowly possible that she could have survived. But come on, she was she was intended to die. Number six, we have Deborah Myers, who is played by Rob's wife, Sherry Moon Zombie. Happy birthday, Sherry! She commits suicide by shooting herself off screen. I gave this a 9 out of 10 because um, it got her out of the fucking movie. (laughs) It would have been a 10 had we seen it on screen. Um, (laughs) I know that's a little hyperbolic, but... um, I I love you, Rob. You don't have to put her in fucking everything you do, man. Okay, we'll talk about that in just just one moment. Um, It also makes her a fucking shitty mom because you hear the, the kid, you know... Lori, yeah. like, okay, fuck. Now, and now you called someone first. Like, <laughs> you've you've orphaned both of your children, the innocent one and the you know the one who stabs people with forks. So, okay, so here, this is the point of discussion I want to have right here. Um, does it hurt across the board, or are there occasions where casting her is suitable in his movies? Because I'm conflicted on this. 99% of the time, I feel like her being in the movie is uh, fucking nails on a chalkboard. I know know a lot of people hate um, House of Thousand Corpses because of her laugh. Like, it drives people crazy. And the whole idea of, like, them doing, like, they're basically trying to play off that as the Manson family. Like they took all oh, those clips. Oh yeah, she's they, they, squeaky from yeah, literally. Like, so I, I I get her in that. She ain't gotten Harry Pitts though. I'll tell you that. That's true. That's gross. I, I've watched a lot of Manson stuff last like six months. I've been <laughs> really bored. So, but like that that character, I get. She's supposed to be that way. She plays that well. Uh, I think she plays it baby well in Devil's Rejects. They definitely toned everybody down. Absolutely. Um, so she there's, she, there's a, there's a scene in the Devil's Rejects when they're out there, they're like in the hotel room with Banjo and Sullivan. She's like, look at that fucking jacket. <laughs> so hard. So like, I love that. But like, I I cannot like you don't have to put her in every fucking movie you do, man. Like it, she's not a terrible actress. But I I'm gonna disagree well, with you. I think she is a terrible actress. I think that Rob can get good out of her. But any other director, I think they would have trouble getting things out of her uh, other than uh, a ass shaking or two. Uh, case in point, she's in an episode of Californication, which I absolutely love. David Duchovny show about a, a writer, and it's his sort of like fall from grace and all that kind of good stuff. Here's what's great about this. Um, he's getting a visectomy because he's trying to be a better man and you know and not spread his seed. And uh, Sherry Zombie has a cameo in this episode as the nurse whose job it is to, like, you know, shave his fun bag. And she's like, hey, nice dick. And I'm thinking, like, wow, did Rob write this dialogue? Because uh, I bet that's the kind of shit they say to each other. Um, you got any, like, what's your postmortem? Just, like, let's put the nail in uh, fucking her and, and move on. Like, I think, final point, stop putting her in your fucking movies. Stop putting her in your movies to the degree that she is allowed in them. She's not a she's not a lead character. Not, no starring roles, please. All right. Um, number seven. During Michael's escape, we have several cops bite the big one. The first of which being legendary Bill Mosley, who is punched to death. Bill deserved better. I gave this a one out of ten. Same. All right. 
number eight, Tom Tolls, who you probably remember as Michael Rooker's lackey and Henry, portrait of a serial killer. Uh, he's one of the cops who gets taken out by Michael. Um, uh, his death is quick and unmemorable uh, when Michael smashes his head against the wall. I, I gave it a 5 out of 10. It's not a bad kill, but you will forget about this the second after you've seen it. So I give it a 2. Stand, okay. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, our next nameless police officer, um, I, I tried to find the actor's name and I, I just couldn't. Um, he's <laughs> used as a human's shield and accidentally shot by someone else. I gave this a 6 out of 10. Um, just because this is one of the kills I remembered, like, off the top of my head before I watched it. I thought it was an interesting uh, way to kill somebody without him directly killing him, if that makes sense. Yeah, I actually had, I actually watched that whole scene on YouTube because I couldn't, I don't have the theatrical cut, that's how I watched it. I agree with you, that was a good kill, I like that one. Uh, number 10 on our victim list is none other than Leslie Easterbrook, who you probably remember best as Sergeant Callahan in Police Academy. Uh, God rest her soul, she's no longer with us. Uh, her kill would make MacGruber proud because she gets her fucking throat ripped out. <laughs> 8 out of 10. Her uh, on-screen uh, time in Halloween is short, but the kill is memorable. What say you? <laughs> I just keep thinking of MacGruber now. <laughs> well, um... I agree. Speaking of MacGruber, uh, our our next kill is uh, Kitty DiCarlo in her small role as Nurse Gloria, who dies a slow, painful death from also having her throat <laughs> ripped out, although it is off-screen. You just see the aftermath. I gave it a 4 out of 10. There didn't need to be two thripped throats in the same movie, at least concurrently. But give me a little space between the throat. <laughs> MacGruber disagrees. <laughs> MacGruber disagrees. Uh, you, you probably got me on that one. Uh, number 12 and number 13 are two nameless Smith's Grove employees who were killed off screen. I gave this a 6 out of 10 because I appreciate the subtlety in this moment because it just it resonated with me because the re reaction from the person who is our next victim, that being the character of Ishmael Cruz, who is a victim number 14, who is brilliantly played by legendary character actor Danny Trejo. Now, after discovering several mangled dead bodies, he pleads with Michael to go back in his cell. There's a moment of hesitation where you know Michael seems like he's he's going to allow him to be himself be handcuffed but no nah. <laughs> he's he's, like, he's going to fuck uh he's going to fuck Ishmael up he holds his head uh in underwater. the underwater and um I love the way this is shot because it keeps cutting you know like verse shot and then the shot of him in the water and every time there's a little more blood in the water and finally it gets so red and then you know he throws him to the ground and he's pleading with him and like he's just like gasping for air he's 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 weak and michael's like well i'm gonna throw a tv on you <laughs> <laughs> oh um i gave this an eight out of ten i, I this kill resonates with me um I, I really like Danny in the role of Ishmael, and he can tell he actually cares about Michael. And they they have those little moments where he's like, "Hey, Mikey, you know, don't let the walls, you know, you know, don't feel caged in. I I spent time locked away, and and I made it through. You'll make it through." So when he got killed, a character who had been really nice to him, that's an effective kill because you don't no want to, you, you do not want to see that character get killed, and because he does the movie really kicks into high gear after this point. Which is kind of fucked up that it takes that long for you to give a shit about someone dying in this I know, movie. I know. I know. We're past an hour at this <laughs> point. Or right at an hour, give or take. Um, I wish, especially if this had been 
two separate movies. I would have liked to have had more interaction between them. You know, just little stuff. You know, like maybe, you know, he he kind of tells him things about his day and his home life, and uh, he's like, I, I don't even know why I tell you this stuff. You know, you're you're not even paying attention. And maybe maybe if you're gonna play on the whole Michael being somewhat sympathetic, maybe you know while he's you know painting his mask and stuff, maybe you you have a moment where he kind of stops and listens. You know, I mean, show some humanity. If you're going to go that route, I, I think they could have gotten more out of the Ishmael character than than God, because he's what in the movie for like, what, five five minutes total? And that's being generous because it's probably half that. Um, Number 15. Just like when Rob gave the mask a backstory, he also decides to give one to Michael's coveralls and knife which are forcibly removed from Dawn of the Dead actor Ken Faree, who plays the role of Big Joe Grizzly. Joe Grizzly is a trucker who stopped off to get his truck washed and take a dump slash jack off to a porn magazine when he is intruded upon by Michael while in the bathroom stall. Michael slams him savagely against the stall and stabs Grizzly in the gut. I gave this an 8 out of 10, and the reason I did is because the moment where he starts slamming him, that that feels real. Go, going into it, they were legit yeah. beating the shit out of one another. But the the they they go from, you know, doing like you know, the regular like lockdown camera to like handheld right there. And I normally don't like handheld like because it's overused, but it's used very effectively right there to, to like it puts you in the action and you feel it. Every hit is just you know, nails you to the fucking wall. So Going going for like you, you rated that one. I'm actually gonna give that one a nine out of ten because he says I'm Joe Grizzly, bitch. Um, but th- this this is a problem I noticed. We we I'm gonna wrap this up real quick with this so we can keep moving. But the uh, time frame of this movie, this scene always kind of throws me off because Joe Grizzly puts off to me a vibe of like the '80s. He doesn't put off a vibe as our current time or what time that would be. He gives you. He gives, I get a seven. I mean, I mean, I mean, generous. Um, but you, the, how many black dudes <laughs> you see run around with Wolverine sideburns and an afro? And I, I, I don't know. He. I mean, I guess maybe it could be the eighties, and he's sort of like caught in the seventies. Caught in the seventies. So that was that's my first instance of this movie where you you can't really place your time because it's supposed to be you know fifteen years later, and and that. But nine out of ten because he's Joe Grizzly bitch. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, number 16, Nick Minnell, who plays the role of Linda's boyfriend, Bob, has uh, the strange distinction of being in both the Halloween remake and also in the remake of Friday the 13th. Um, I didn't recognize him because he looks vastly different in this movie than he does in that. He's uh, one of the characters at the very beginning uh, when they're camping. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his kill is nearly identical to the way Bob was killed in the original 78 film with him being stabbed to the wall by Michael. Uh, I have a simple way of describing this. Less is more. The original kill is so much more effective and it's it, it's all the reaction. We talked about this earlier. And, and this movie, you know, they're, they're in the Myers house. They're not in... Were they in Bob or Linda's house? No, they were in... Um... Where Annie was babysitting. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I can't think. Of, but L- I mean, Lindsay Wall- Wallace house. Yeah. Sorry, Lindsay Wallace. But I mean, they're. I don't know. I I get like set designer like overload vibes when like you know like well we got to put this in a creepy place 
And it's like, The Exorcist is a perfect example. It's like all the, the places in that just look like real places. And to me, that makes it feel more real. So, like, the environment doesn't work for me. It's way more effective when it's, you know, he's, you know, down in, like, the pantry of the, you know, the, the Wallace house or whatever, rather than, you know, you know, an abandoned house where teens go to fuck. Agreed. Not that those places don't exist. <laughs> Morristown College. <laughs> I'm going to keep my mouth shut on my, my spaces. Uh, I gave it a 4 out of 10. What you, what'd you say? I give it a five. I, I know I, the reason the mo- it's in the movie is just it's just a callback to the original. Yeah. Which I mean, I get it. I agree that like it was probably an expectation that it had to be there, but I, I thought it was kind of uncreative. Uh, number seventeen, taking up the mantle of the role of Linda, we have the incredibly beautiful and talented Christina Klebe. Thank you again for that awesome intro. In a scene that mirrors its 78 counterpart, Linda is choked to death by Michael, but without the phone cord like in the original. Um, Linda is actually my favorite character in this movie, and the reason being is that she's hot, she wears a Slayer shirt, she wears fucking, like, knee-high socks, and I would, I would so fucking raw dog that I'd get her pregnant, <laughs> I, I would, I would go into fucking bankruptcy to, to put a baby in that. Um, and I'm not really crazy about blondes, but, uh, there's something that fucking, she, she she does it for me, man. She, she, her titties are definitely better than PJ Souls. I'm just gonna get that out there. Uh, um, I, I, no, no disrespect to PJ Souls, but yeah. And the, the whole part where she talks about, like, they were talking about, um, she was gonna do the cheers with no panties on. Yeah, and I just. And she said, C-U-N-T. Like, <laughs> love that shit. Uh, titties, wish... titties, 10 out of 10. <laughs> agree. Kill 4 out of 10, titties 10 out of 10. I'll give, I'll give them a 12 out of 10, because I grow, I grow two extra inches. My gut recesses, and there's like, there's girth that was not there previously when I, when I see this. <laughs> People are going to not I, do I, intros I, ever again. I, 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 she's not going to fucking hear this. <laughs> I love you, Christina. We're, we're joking around, but seriously, give me a call. Um, number 18, uh, veteran character actor Pat Skipper. I, I, I've, I couldn't remember his name. He plays Mason Strode, the adopted father of Lori. He gets knocked the fuck out and thrown into the house when he's stabbed off screen. I gave this a 7 out of 10 because I really, really like both Mason and um, Cynthia Strode in this movie. They're fo- so fucking likable. And I would actually have given this probably a nine, if not for the fact that I laugh every time he gets punched. And it's <laughs> it's just, it's just it's, it happens so fucking out of nowhere. And I remember, remember like a few years ago, there was like this uh, this YouTube craze where it was like the punch game where like people would just go punch people. But that's what it reminds me of. And that's awful. Don't go around <laughs> punching people, especially like, you know, older people. But... It, it reminds me so much of that that I just, I can't help but laugh. Um, number 19 is Lori's mother, Cynthia Strode, who is brilliantly played by Dee Wallace, who is every motherfucking mother in every motherfucking 1980s movie, everything from E.T. to Critters, anticlimactically has her neck snapped. I She deserved better. Um, because she's such a likable character, I, I think it would have added a, a punch right there if you if you gotten to see her. That scene's really good too. Just the whole kill scene, like of that, of him in the house yeah. with her and the phones ringing, and then gets then gets a bracket trying to call her. It is, and it, it, I really like that setup. And she mm. is one of the both of them are two of the more redeeming characters, like we were talking about Danny Trejo's, where you actually kind of give a shit. Yeah, I I gave it a six. It it should be it, it would have been higher if 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 the kill had. 
they should have lingered on it and and I and I know that like I'm more on the side of like less is more but there's certain characters that like you you need to see them suffer and because you want to draw the empathy from the moment and I feel like she deserved more than what she got. Number 20, we have Max Van Hill, or Ville, or Villy, I don't know how it's pronounced, in the role of Annie's boyfriend, Paul, who dies the worst death when he is yanked off of literal heaven, the topless <laughs> Daniel Harris, just before he was going to get some of that wet, wet, only to get stabbed in the gut. Then his body is strung up in a doorway with a jack-o'-lantern over his head. He died as I hope to die. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. I or I really like that scene though because I feel like you don't see it's something creative that you don't you didn't really see. Yeah, I the 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 playfulness of Michael is something that that, that is a little underwhelming in this movie where it's a little more present in the uh, the original. But him strung strung him up with the the jack lantern in his head. That's that's classic. Well, the, the whole fact too that later on you have uh, uh, Lori, she comes there and she finds her and then. Lori's like running to go call the cops, but Michael literally just stops and just pushes the body, and it just—he—he's—he's <laughs> he's behind the door the whole time, yeah. and the way the shot is framed, you would never notice because it's so dark on that left side, and then the door slowly, and all you see is just the silhouette of the mask. Masterful. Good job. So good, yeah, good job. Good job, Michael or uh, Rob. <laughs> he wants to be Michael. All right. Um, number twenty-one, Officer Lowry, who is played by Paul Kramp. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, gets slammed against the door and stabbed in the back. I gave this a nine out of ten, and the reason I did is because it's a it's an effective kill, not specifically because of the kill itself, but because Lori, Tommy, and Lindsay are in utter hysterics behind the door it's the it's the impact of a person being killed in cl such close proximity and this is the point where you shift from something's wrong to we're gonna die like the, this the imminent danger is so palpable right there L Lindsay Wallace steals it she uh, she's oh she's like legitimately terrified terrified yes. yeah you, you can't I don't care how good of actor you are there are certain times you can just tell when somebody's like you know, white knuckling something. But uh, what do you say? I gave it a nine out of ten. I give it a seven out of ten, just because I would I would like to see more of it. But I get what the, what it was trying to accomplish. Okay. Uh, number two, uh, number twenty-two, Richmond Arquette, who plays Deputy Charles, is none other than the brother of Patricia and David Arquette. Didn't know that. Uh, yeah, how many siblings are there, uh, are there in that uh, family? Quite quite a few, because uh, there was. Uh, uh, Lewis is their dad, and then um, what was the one that that uh, that died? Alexis, Alexis Arquette, yeah, and um, uh, fuck uh, the Rosanna Arquette. So yep. yeah, there there's quite a few of them. Uh, he doesn't last long. He manages to shoot Michael, but he's quickly stabbed and killed. I gave it a four out of ten. He's just there to get killed. Throw away. It's not it's a very, throwaway kill. Not yeah. very memorable. Our final two kills are exclusively in the unrated cut, and they're from the rape scene. Both of these kills are too quick and to the point because the two characters that would have been acceptable to want to see killed, they get off so fucking easily. Yeah. Number 23, we have Jack Crindle, who is played by Courtney Gaines, who you probably remember as Malachi from Children the of the Corn. And the, and the Burbs, His yes. favorite role he has is in the Burbs. <laughs> 
toast. Milk <laughs> toast. Uh, anyways, uh, his rape conquest goes horribly wrong, or maybe it goes right. I, I don't know how to quantify it. Uh, when he gets smashed against a wall, I gave it a 2 out of 10 because this dude should have been fucking eviscerated. Both of them should have yeah, had their impaled fucking... Impaled or something. Their, they, their dicks should have been... They should have been stabbing the fucking dicks. Uh, number 24, our final victim is Noel, who is played by Lou Temple. You probably know him from... Uh, he's Axel in The Walking Dead. And uh, several other Rob Zombie movies. He's, Banjo and Sullivan. Yeah, I yep. don't remember he's Sullivan or is he Banjo? I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember. D- it doesn't matter, but he, he's one or the other. Um, he he's got his uh, pants around his ankles because he's nailing this or n- nailing no no he's raping. Let's let's call it what it is. He's raping this fucking woman, and he he gets his head smashed against the wall. The literal rapist, plural, both get off way too easily. I gave it a three out of ten. I should have given it a one, one out of ten. I give it a one, and I, I understand. Like I, I, I want to say, I listened to one of the commentaries, and the whole idea that Rob had is that he's heard these stories of how these women are raped by you know people in these asylums. Listen, but it doesn't I, belong in a listen, Halloween I, listen, movie. I, I, I don't doubt that there are instances instances where this has happened. It doesn't benefit the movie. No. At all for it to be included, so 100% rape scene sucks. Theatrical cut of escape better. There's all our victims. Let's do our uh, additional cast really quick. And one of the absolute major issues with Rob Zombie's Halloween is its batshit enormous cast. There are so many characters who are on screen for like seconds, and nobody is fleshed out. At least not enough. That being said, let's run down these really quick. We got Udo Kier as Morgan Walker. He's the administrator at Smith's Grove. Um, you've seen him in fucking, uh, fucking every '70s art house movie, and uh, fucking uh, he was uh, Andy Warhol's Dracula, and uh, and you know tons of '80s horror movies, and and he still works today. He's basically Doctor Wynn. That's his equivalent. Uh, Richard Lynch, who plays Principal Chambers. Uh, he was a great villain in Puppet Master 3 and Invasion USA with Chuck Norris. Um, and uh, one time he did drugs and he lit himself on fire. Uh, <laughs> Clint Howard as uh, Dr. Coppelson, he, uh, the brother of Ron Howard, the star of Ice Cream Man. Uh, you also may know him from that episode of Star Trek where he was a little kid and he's bald and he drinks uh, blue uh, alcohol. Uh, Skylar Gizondo as Tommy Doyle. Uh, he... It's pretty good job. He had a reoccurring role in Psych, uh, I, I want to say. Uh, Jenny Gregg Stewart as Lindsay Wallace. As far as I can tell, this is her only acting credit. That is a shame. She is great. She's so good. She was great. So I, I don't know what... Maybe it was being in a Rob Zombie movie soured you on acting, but if you ever hear this... Um, maybe give it another shot because I think you you had you were fant- you you are a gleaming light in this movie. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, Mickey Dolans uh, as a gun store owner, uh, best known as a member of the Monkees. I met him. He's a dick. Fuck him. Uh, Daniel <laughs> Roebuck as Lou Martini. He's the owner of uh, Rabbit and Red. Um, he's got a way bigger role in Part Two. Blink, blink, and you miss him. I don't think he even has any dialogue in this movie. Kills the shit out of him in Part Two. Yes, he does. And last but not least, we have Sid Haig as Chester Chesterfield. He's the caretaker of the cemetery he is fucking awesome in this movie he's real it's just two guys having a conversation and the, the indignation he has when they find the the dead animal on the where the cross yeah where yeah, the headstone like, was god damn it kids and um i can't say enough nice things about sid Haig. sid Haig, great guy much missed um rest in peace my friend oh <sighs> okay 
I don't know about you, but after all this talking, I sure could use a drink. So let's drink it in, man. Halloween 2007 edition. So what you're going to do, after you've finished this podcast, you're going to pop in your Blu-ray DVD copy of uh, you know streaming, however you got it, of Rob Zombie's Halloween. And whether you love or hate the movie, a shot of alcohol is going to improve it. Um, so you're going to be ingesting uh, some things to spice up your October night. So... I want you to take a shot. Whenever a character says fucked, that alone is going to get you drunk. So please drink responsibly. (laughs) Take a shot. Anytime you hear a recognizable classic rock song, such as Don't Fear the Reaper, you're probably drunk in that of itself. Anytime a character says or does something sexual, you are dead. (laughs) Uh, Anytime you see the outside of the Myers house, drunk. Any time Michael wears a new mask, take a shot. Every time baby Lori cries or screams, take a shot. 18th birthday, Eddie. Alcohol poisoning. Oh, my God. (laughs) And last but not least, whenever there is a direct reference to the original Halloween, take a double shot. Smashed. (laughs) Those cues to drink will definitely do the trick, but for those of you out there in the Rant Army who take your drinking, well, more seriously and would like something a little more special to sip on during your autumn night rather than the good old rot gut that uh, I ingest on a regular basis, our friends at Secret the Booze have a Michael Myers-inspired cocktail that's bound to get your blood pumping. What you're going to need? You're going to need four ounces of hot pumpkin spice coffee. You're going to need one ounce of Jameson's whiskey, or any whiskey will work, but uh, the Irish whiskey is uh, the route to go, and one ounce of rum chata. Directions, pour all your ingredients into a mug and stir. It's simply all you need. But basically what you're going to get here is you're going to get a basically an Irish coffee with a fall flair. And I'm a basic bitch, <laughs> so pumpkin spice coffee with a kick sounds hella good to me. So I think I'm going to be uh, making this this month. I know I know you like the uh, uh, pumpkin spice as well. I do. There you know, were a couple of basic white women. <laughs> hashtag basic white bitches. All right, let's uh, run through a, a few things of quick trivia. Uh, Halloween was not released in October for fear of going head-to-head with Saw 4. It was intended to be released uh, months earlier, um, but it got released in August, the same day as Death Sentence, starring Kevin Bacon. I saw them both on opening day, so that's my story of seeing Halloween. Uh, I was both excited for both of these because Death Sentence uh, was based off of a book uh, of a uh, so there's there's Death Wish with Charles Bronson, and then the sequel to the book is called Death Sentence, and they never produced that into a movie, and they changed some things, but it's a revenge movie. It's directed by his James son, Wan. His son gets shot. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert, yeah, I've seen I've seen that movie. Not yeah. theaters though, because I mean I saw them both the same day, um, and I saw Halloween first, and uh, and I I wasn't I I didn't leave the theater like. Fuck this movie! I was just kind of processing, like, what did I see? And I left the theater a lot more happy when I saw Death Sentence. <laughs> um, of uh, the the hoodie Lori wears when she is walking home from school, where she's being stalked with, by Michael, you know, after Chef Brackett uh, talks to them and picks up Annie, and then her and Linda kind of split ways. Uh, she's wearing a a hoodie that has like skulls on it. Well, that's a uh, product placement directly from. Uh, uh, Sherry Moon Zombie's personal clothing line called Total Skull. I'm not familiar with it, but uh, evidently uh, white girls love it. 
Dimensions Films once considered making a crossover film between Pinhead from Hellraiser against Michael, following the footsteps of New Line Cinema, who did Freddy vs. Jason, which had a huge financial success. Uh, A poll was held on the official website, but the response was so negative that they dropped the concept. Now, the poll has been cited by people involved as it was somewhat of a joke, but in more recent years, some stuff has come to light where they revealed that it was actually being considered, more so because they they were feared of losing the Hellraiser rights because they have to produce a film every so many years to keep, you know... The, uh, the rights, otherwise they'll yeah they'll revert back to, to Clive Barker. So, yeah, glad that didn't happen. I'm all for crossover films uh, where they make sense. That would make none. Um, acting legend John Hurt, uh, best known for roles in uh, Alien, and uh, David Lynch's The Elephant Man was considered for the role of Dr. Samuel Loomis. He would have been absolutely fantastic in any movie not directed by, by <laughs> Rob Zombie. Um, Angel Myers, a.k.a. Baby Laurie Strode, was played by twins Sidney and Myla Pitzer, and there was also a third baby used named Stella Altman. I, I guess all babies looking look enough alike. Put to, a hat on them. Yeah, yeah put a hat on them. <laughs> All right, we have a few fan questions. Uh, first one comes from Ben Hopkins, and I want to say, uh, Ben, uh, well, since we heard from you, Ben, I hope all is well. Thank you for send, uh, submitting the question. Of the songs featured in the movie, which is your favorite? I know Brandon is a big Kiss fan, so my guess is going to be that. He's referring to um, God of Thunder, which plays towards the beginning of the film. But let's just uh, run down the songs that, uh, or some of the songs that are featured in the movie. Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. I, that's an obvious reference to the original film. Uh, Baby I Love You by, uh, or Baby, Baby I Love Your Way by Peter Frampton. Uh, that's playing when uh, they're arguing in the during breakfast. And uh, Judas is like, eggs are chicken abortions. And he has weird makes no sense. in this. Uh, Let It Ride by Bachman Turner Overdrive. Uh, I get shit all the time. Uh, this is a deep, deep dive. Where, uh, I am called Canadian by t- uh, <laughs> fucking uh, Touch and Chip Skip and, and Stank Dick Eddie. And <laughs> Brendan. <laughs> yeah, they, and, and I, I am, Travis. I am all American. So fuck you, Titty Flippin' Travis. Um, but I love this song and Bachman Turner Overdrive. They're they're from Canada, so I, I get that. Only Women Bleed by Alice Cooper. Uh, Halloween Two by The Misfits. Uh, Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. And this is like, it, blink and you'll miss it, or you know, don't hear and you'll miss it. Uh, when, uh, yeah, fuck, uh, Annie's boyfriend is coming to pick her up. Uh, and they drive away. It's playing in his car. Uh, Tom Sawyer by Rush, which plays during uh, Big, Joe, Joe, yeah. Yeah, Big Joe Grizzly. And uh, Love Hurts by Nazareth, which uh, uh, fucking um, Deborah Myers strips to. Um, huh? So, <laughs> no, no, don't, don't make no sense. Uh, but my favorite song is Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath because it's my favorite song of all time from my favorite album of all time by my favorite band of all time. What's your favorite song from the movie? Funny thing is I actually bought the soundtrack the day uh, I actually went and saw the movie and I actually listened to it and one of my favorite little tracks on there is the clip from the movie where uh, Bill Mosley goes, Trick or Treat, baby. Uh, song-wise, though, I love almost every song on the album. Of course, I love Rush. However, uh, Let It Ride by uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive is 
actually my favorite one. It's a it's a good it's a really good song. It's very right. catchy. Um, yeah, I fuck Canada, but they're, they're <laughs> good stuff. Um, all right, this comes from Justin Howard. I I like to think that Rob Zombie's Halloween only exists in the original timeline as a movie within the movie, Ooh. made about the events in 1978. How do you feel about this, and how do you uh, justify its existence? That's making me laugh. That's an interesting concept. So, especially when you go into like Halloween 2018, where all of the events, uh, you know, because they kind of poke fun of like, oh, isn't he, you know, his, isn't Michael Meyer Lori's sister? No, that was just, that's what people believe. Well, what if this was a movie that exists in that universe about the events, but jazzed up for audiences. I think that's an interesting idea and a way to justify it. I think it makes it, more fucking sense that that is the case <laughs> considering the movie now. It's kind of like uh, in Scream there's the Stab yeah, series. series yeah. So does that make you enjoy this movie more? Like, I, I kind of like this idea. I like it. Um, and the second part, how do you justify its existence? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, well, it made a shit ton of money so I guess well, that's the most that's, reasonable that, that in of itself is is why you have to because it was a huge success. Uh, this comes from Miranda Hayes. Uh, if there had been a part three in the Rob Zombie series, where would you have liked the story to go? Okay, I have an interesting idea. So at the end of this movie, you have Lori blow Michael's head off, or seemingly shoot him in the head, and then at the beginning of part two, you have her like wandering aimlessly, and they find her. With the end of the movie, you see her in an insane asylum. What if that entire movie is, a dream. is in her, well, just in her head? You know, because she's crazy from the fucking PTSD trauma that she's lived through. So, the third movie could have kind of fulfilled, and this would have never happened, by the way, because it, it, this is going too far out, but... I feel like if if Halloween two had been a success, then there's possibility this could have happened. But um, they could have fulfilled the idea laid in place at the end of Halloween four of you know Jamie kind of taking on the evil. What if Laurie is the killer? You know, it could, would have been a completely different movie. I'm not saying this would have been good, but I think that would have been a natural way to progress the story whether or not they wanted the second movie to be a dream or not i think the whole concept that you came up with where halloween 2 is legit like a fucking dream and or like it's in her head not a dream but like she's fucking crazy now and it's in her head and it makes the most sense but michael is still technically alive he survived it and you somehow come up with a way and they always fucking do but i i always kind of liked the idea that they were originally going to go with where they were going to make halloween 3d because they've already fucked this 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 well, that was going to be it was going to be Patrick Lussier and Todd Farmer who yep. uh, did Drive Angry and Todd Farmer uh, they well, they were uh, oh, fuck um oh, the the uh, fucking Harry Warden uh, why can't I think of it uh, My Bloody Valentine 3D mm-hmm. they they did that movie and Todd Farmer wrote Jason X yeah and I would have been fine with them doing a 3D movie because I mean it would still to me it would still be better the Resurrection I think so. And that's, that's a fucking far-fetched statement to make. But I think it'd be something cool. I mean, why not? Um, but at the same time, would they have turned around and had to make it like an all-new like reboot? Like, what would have happened? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think regardless, I, I it, like whether this was a, a two-movie two arc or a three-movie arc, things were bound to, to, no. to go away from this 
this era, you know, eventually. Um, we have one final question, and I actually didn't type it out, but I'm just going to paraphrase it. This comes from Titty Flippin' Travis, who, <laughs> who loves to uh, give us genital-related questions, but he wants to know if Michael uh, has any, like, um, regrets about wanting to fuck his sister, and, um, if, I mean, if he's... You know, here's the thing. He could fuck his own sister, and it still wouldn't be the most fucked up thing in this movie. So, <laughs> You know what? I was about to say that the whole basis of the question actually pertains to a Rob Zombie movie, so I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. However, I do see a lot of people in um, different groups I'm in, like Halloween groups on Facebook, talk about, like, they, they do they think the reason that Michael kills is because he's still a virgin, and he saw his sister kill? Like, there's some oh, like, dude, I, rooted thing to it. You know, I've never thought about this, but he's a fucking virgin. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, right. Well, Jason would be a virgin too. That's why they're Freddy, so. Freddie definitely is not. No, Freddie is not. <laughs> that's uh, fucked up. But that's that's why they're so fucking angry. That's why Freddie has a sense of humor about things. <laughs> he got that nut off. All right, like okay, so let's before you and I give our closing remarks right now. Let's actually throw to some audio from our good friend Lee McCoy. Of Drum Dums, who was one of the very first people to give us any kind of uh, press, uh, and he didn't have any reason to do so. Big fans of his uh, channel. Uh, check it out on YouTube. We'll leave links down in the description. I think he's the big reason why Halloween 4 is the most downloaded episode. Oh, I, I have no doubt about that. So thank you very much. Let's hear what he has to say. What is up, guys? This is Lee from the Drum Dums channel. First off, I just want to give a big thanks to Brandon and crew for uh, inviting me to give some quick thoughts uh, in their Rob Zombie's Halloween retrospective. Um, and I'll cut right to the chase. Rob Zombie's Halloween definitely ranks pretty low for me, um, but that doesn't take away from some of the merits it has. I think I think there's like a visual appeal. To really all of Rob Zombie's movies, uh, but including this one, um, I, I think if you were to turn the sound off on this this movie, I think there would be something in every scene that would kind of catch your eye, you know. So I have to give Rob Zombie credit in that aspect of filmmaking, but it's once you turn that volume up uh, that you kind of have a problem with it. Now. Uh, just talking about the franchise itself in regards to Rob Zombie, I think Halloween works best when it's simple. The The very first movie directed by John Carpenter, it's just a very simple story. And if you, if you look at, like, say, Michael Myers' parents, we don't know anything about them. All that we know is that they are from a middle-class family. Myers, uh, as a child there was nothing wrong with him. He didn't have a bad upbringing. And so I think setting the, the table with that blank slate set up a great uh, and really terrifying horror film because it's unexpected. But Rob Zombie wanted to tell a different backstory. And really his big interest in uh, the remake of Halloween was kind of honing in on Meyer's backstory. Where did he come from? How did this happen? And when you're, when you're looking at a blank slate, you pretty much have to come up with your own idea of that. And so what he came up with, I think it takes away from the mystery. And Myers has always been a mysterious type of character. 
you know, a blank slate. So uh, in essence, it really doesn't work for me. Um, as far as things that I do like about the movie, I think the second half in terms of a remake, because this is the remake portion of the movie, I think the second half does have its merits. There are some things that are really cool about the second half. I think Myers is pretty damn scary. Tyler Maine is the one plus about this movie. He looks striking as Myers. He's a monster. Uh, and you could have some problems with Myers being that big because Myers is supposed to be a normal looking guy, you know, a blank slate. Tyler Maine doesn't really look like a blank slate. Um, but really just to sum it up, I think when you compare every single aspect of Rob Zombie's Halloween, uh, you know, Laurie Strode, Linda, Annie, everything about the movie, I think doesn't quite stack up to what John Carpenter presented. And so ultimately it fails. And it is one of the movies in the franchise that I find myself wanting to throw in uh, the least. I, I usually reach for uh, another movie. Even Halloween 5, which is one of the lower ranked movies for me, there's something about that movie that still constantly like draws me in. Uh, but for some reason, Rob Zombie's Halloween, just not the case. Uh, I do applaud what he did with Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. His second effort, I think, is a big step in the right direction. And I think, you know, tying a big bow around his vision in just two movies, I think he succeeded in that regard. Uh, so I like what he did in the second movie. I don't think it feels like a Halloween movie. It just feels like what a trauma victim would go through, you know, after the events that happened in the first movie. And so that's the movie that I tend to throw in a lot more, but uh, not his first outing. I, I would always go for the original. And I can't always say that about every remake. There are some remakes that I like quite well compared to the original. But uh, yeah, not Rob Zombie's Halloween. So anyway, Brandon, big thank you, good sir, for having me on, uh, giving my thoughts on this. I hope I didn't go way too long, but uh, this is Lee from Drum Dums signing out, and uh, peace, everybody. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Lee. That awesome for you to do that, and I know like uh, scheduling uh, stuff, we've had some kind of like uh, goes and uh, missteps to to get you on, but thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to to give us that. And the cool thing is we all kind of share the same views. Very, very similar. Um, it was all, all pretty, actually eerily similar <laughs> to some of the things we said. Um, so, closing remarks. Um, where do you think this movie ranks in terms of the, how many do we have now? Twelve? Halloween films? H2O, Resurrection, 1, 2, um, 11, 12. We're about 11. We're about to hit 12 in 1913. Okay. Um, really easy for me. Um, my bottom three, this is definitely in it. Um, even when I saw it, I tried to be very optimistic when I was, you know, 19 years old seeing this movie just because I'm such a fan of Rob Zombie. Uh, watching it a week ago, dude, fuck this movie. This movie's not I de good. I definitely like this movie a lot more then than I do now and, and it's all because of resurrection um yeah we had such a bad taste in your mouth that like it, this movie could couldn't fail you know yeah just because any anything of any kind of quality was going to be a, 
a step up. I, I would if you're gonna put the bottom three. So this is from best to worst. I would go Halloween, uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, Rob Zombie's Halloween Two, and then Resurrection. Because at least Rob Zombie's Halloween Two looks good. Yeah, Re- Resurrection yeah. is literally just a piece of shit. Um, I might get some flack for this, but if 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 I had a gun to my head and I had to choose. I probably would watch this over five. Yeah, I agree. I probably would watch this movie over definitely the theatrical cut of uh, Halloween Six. Um, I'd probably rank it a little lower than H2O. I know I'm going to get flack for that, but um, everything else is above it for me. So for me, it's probably towards the bottom, but a little higher than maybe you. I just I think it's just the whole canon of the original series, which I know Halloween Five is a is shitty, and people will defend it. And Halloween Five is a shitty fucking movie too. They rushed it. I mean, we get it. That but. stuttering kid and and fucking uh, Tina, the Tina most annoying alone. character, and then Jamie Rachel. doesn't speak half the movie, and they kill Rachel. Like Tina, it should have been flipped. Tina should have been killed. Rachel should have lived towards the oh, end. At least fucking show them titties, Tina. Yeah. God uh, damn it. That's redeemable. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we close out shop, I want to thank our major sponsor this month, Ripley's Haunted Adventure. I need all of you out there in the Rant Army to join us in this spooky, smoky mountains uh, every Friday and Saturday this October for Tennessee's scariest event that is celebrating its se- 22nd season of Fright Nights. More specifically, this year, their sinister theme is Grimsby and Streeper Back from the Dead, which goes back to classic haunted house basics, filled with all the chills and thrills you can handle. Tickets go on sale today, October 1st, and for the listeners of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, you can slash the normal ticket price of $14.99 in half. Go to ripleys.com slash Gatlinburg and enter promo code RANT2020. That's R-A-N-T-2020. And in case you're wondering where it's at, Ripley's Haunted Adventure is located at 908 Parkway in downtown Gatlinburg. They're dying to meet you, so get your tickets now. I think that's going to wrap us up for another month, and we'll be back in November to celebrate another unlucky day. I'll let you just figure that one out on your own, which we're referring to. The Rants in the Black Lodge podcast can be found on a multitude of platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Google Podcasts, so go give us a subscribe right now. You can find us on social media at Rance Black Lodge. Check out our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a t-shirt or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com. For Stank Dick Eddie, this is Brandon A. Lane signing off. Till next month, Rant Army, keep marching. <laughs>